Okay, Jesse, last week's Alaskan strip club adventure was pretty nutso. What's the story this week? A woman escapes an abusive marriage and finds herself happily remarried with a new family and a bright, beautiful life until tragedy strikes. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about triumph, tragedy, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, as always, thank you guys so much for your incredible reviews this week. So I'm waiting on some new stickers so I can send out some new stickers because I got some really fun serial killer Valentines from Etsy. How cute are they, Andy? I'm obsessed. They're so funny. They're kind of like vintage old timey. And if you guys are receiving them, they do not have the serial killer's names on them. (laughs) <laughs> so you might just think like, why are Jesse and Andy sending me um, a weird, creepy dude, Valentine? They're all serial killers. So definitely if you get one of these, you know, post it, tag us. If you don't know who it is, ask. I'm sure your other <laughs> true crime fans will tell you, but you probably will. You guys will probably get get it. And if you want one of those, just leave a review and send us a screenshot and we'd be very happy to send you a Valentine's Day card. Yeah, and if you've already left a review, where can they leave a second review, Jesse? So if you've already left an Apple review, which is the best place to leave it, you can leave one on Amazon or Audible or I think like Podchaser also you can leave reviews. So yeah, those are all places where you can leave a secondary review. And if you left a review and you never got your stickers, please, please, please hit us up on Facebook, on Instagram, or at lovers at lovemurder.love. Also, the discussion group is a fantastic place to get our attention. If you join it on Facebook, feel free to tag either of us, especially me. I am constantly on the Facebook group. So if you guys are like, hey, I never got my sticker or something happened, just at me on the Facebook discussion group and I will help you. Speaking of which, today's story is a request from a listener. And I was so convinced there was at least two people who requested this story that I know I am missing someone. So this is the story of Sheila Bellish and Samantha S requested it and even gave me a book suggestion, which is fantastic as usual. But I really, really, really think there was someone else. So please, please, please hit me up and I will apologize profusely, send you some stickers and give you a shout out next episode. That sounds like a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal. We're going to stretch this out into a different (laughs) episode because I am so sure that somebody else requested this. 
So yeah, this is a little different. This is a an Anne Rule book is the basis of our story today. Uh, the book is called Every Breath You Take. So we're back with the queen of true crime this week. There was also a show called Sex, Lies, and Murder that featured this case. It's on Reels, but I found it for free using the Roku app. If you are like me and have one of those fairly inexpensive smart TVs that you can get from like TCL or whatever. Everybody has the Roku. It's great. I have a question, Jesse. Yeah. Did Anne Rule have to get the rights from the police for the title of this book? (laughs) I don't think so. But that is kind of where I think the idea of the story came from because it is about somebody who's rather stalkery. So I think we should... Just jump into it and you guys will figure it out along the way, huh? Yeah, you know, I love a stalker story. Let's get going. As you know, Andy, true crime author Anne Rule is legendary. The queen of true crime had a truly prolific and celebrated career in her over 40 years of bringing victims' lives to light in such a beautiful and respectful way. She was a phenomenal author who let no detail be spared and... That was the case in this book, you guys. It was 670 darn pages. Jessica, how did you read that in a week? That would take me half a year. Oh my God, this was a rough one, guys. This was a rough one. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, I was like on Audible and my Kindle and I had a paper copy that was like triple purchase go into Ann Rule's estate. But you know what? She deserves it. No idea how you do this. (laughs) Well, after so many years of telling horrific crime stories and even having befriended Ted Bundy himself when they worked at the Seattle Suicide Hotline together, it took a lot to surprise Anne. However, she was surprised when a victim specifically asked her to share her tale from beyond the grave. Okay. When Sheila Bellish's sister, Carrie, finally got in touch with Anne in 2000, she said 10 years ago, Sheila was ending her marriage and she told me, if anything happens to me, promise me that you will see that there is a major investigation. Carrie promised, but that wasn't all. After watching a miniseries about another Anne Rule book, Dead Sunset, in 1995, Sheila called Carrie with one more request. Remember what I told you about what to do if anything happened to me? Now promise me one more thing. Promise me, if I'm not here, that you will find Anne Rule and you will have her write my story. Okay, that's crazy. So crazy and so intense. What a important and overwhelming request, you know, to honor someone's life. Well, Carrie wasn't even alone. Anne would come to find out that Sheila had asked several friends to find her as well, if the worst had come to pass. And unfortunately, it had. Anne dove headlong into bringing justice to Sheila's memory and telling the horrible truth of her heroic efforts to escape a manipulative, abusive monster who sought to destroy her. This is an episode and trigger warning about domestic violence, the myriad ways victims of domestic abuse are failed, an evil human being motivated by power, vengeance, and control, and the woman at the heart of it, a woman who, like all of us, just wanted to love and be loved, one who wanted to live to hug her children and watch them grow but one who lived with the awful premonition that so many victims of domestic violence suffer from. 
the one that says, I might not get out of this alive. So let's tell Sheila's story today the way she wanted it shared through the words and narrative of her chosen author and rule with me pinch hitting to bring it to your podcast listening ears with the hope that Sheila's story can help others who are out there. Which, by the way, guys, I think it's been edited out before when we've talked about this, but I always tell Andy that whenever I'm writing these episodes, I always think, W-W-A-R-D, what would Ann Rule do? How can you approach a true crime story with respect and love and care like she always did? So hopefully I am succeeding in only like a one one hundredth of the capacity of an Ann Rule. <laughs> but let's talk about Sheila. Sheila Walsh was born in October of 1962, the second of four daughters born to mother Verma Jean, who went by Jean, and her second husband, Frank Walsh. Jean had been married for the first time when she was only 15 years old. The marriage had ultimately collapsed under the stress of being a teenager with two young sons while her first husband was deployed overseas. Jean divorced and met Frank when she was a beautiful 24-year-old single mother, and he was only 20 years old himself. After a whirlwind courtship, the two married and quickly began having babies. Four girls in six years. Wow. Yeah. Mary Catherine was born first in 1961 and then Sheila in 1962. And then a little baby named Kelly Ann, who sadly only lived 19 days. Oh, my God. She Why? had a congenital heart defect. Oh, God. Yeah. After that, as you can imagine, Jean decided she didn't want to have any more children. You know, the grief was too much. So she got an IUD, but she was shocked as hell when the IUD failed and she ended up pregnant and delivering little Carrie in 1967. Wow. Which just goes to show you that Carrie was like this miracle baby that was supposed to be there, you know? Yeah. Carrie and Sheila grew up to not only look almost exactly alike, but they were also best friends almost from day one. Father Frank was also in the military. He was a fighter pilot for the Air Force. So the kids didn't get to see him as much as they would have liked. When he was home, he seemed a little overwhelmed by having acquired five children by the age of 27. Whoa. Yeah, because he, he was the stepdad to her two oldest sons as well. And he ended up drinking a little bit too much. Jean, who was either alone or not quite helped at all by an absent alcoholic partner, realized that the relationship was doomed. The couple tried several times to repair the marriage. It was like a very back and forth thing. But eventually they ended up divorced in the late 60s. Whoa, which is rare. Yes, that was not a time where there was, especially like for Jean, having multiple divorces at that point, you know? Yeah. Still very attractive and with a tireless spirit, Jean eventually settled down with yet another Air Force fighter pilot. This guy was Don Smith, and this marriage totally stuck. Don was seven years older than Jean, and he was mature enough to take on the responsibility of the five kids Jean was bringing into the marriage. Wow. That is a lot imagine? of stuff, kids. That's a lot. I mean, that's some dedication. I know how hard it is out there for single parents. Can you imagine if you had five, you know? No. Oof. So the couple wed on February 4th, 1972. Carrie and Sheila both said that Don was the main father figure for the rest of their lives. 
Unfortunately, their biological father, Frank, had not really had the chance to be that for his girls. Frank was gunned down in Vietnam only two days before Christmas in 1972, the same year that Jean had remarried Don. Whoa. Yeah, this was a horrible shock for Jean and the children. Frank had only been 32 years old. Oh my God, that's so sad. I mean, so many kids died in Vietnam. Ugh, you know, so that's just many. one of the, what, tens of thousands? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, this really hit Jean hard, despite the fact that she was, you know, a newlywed and had moved on. She really grieved this loss as a widow. That was until she received a letter from a woman in Okinawa who claimed that she had been Frank's longtime mistress, including most of the time that Frank and Jean had been married. What? Yeah. Like that, I guess he was stationed in Okinawa for a lot of the war and he had like a full time, like additional wife, essentially. Are you still a widow if you had divorced that person? I mean, I think that you are probably not technically a widow. Okay, I wasn't but... sure if like that's still how it like worked, but I, I wasn't sure if you still like adopted that term. Yeah, I feel like you'd feel widowed. I mean, it's still the father of your children, you yeah. know? So yeah, she was kind of like frustrated to find that out and she kind of wished she hadn't known that, you know? Yeah. But there was a reason why they had separated and it made a lot more sense after the fact. I mean, just grieving complicated people is a complicated process. And it's also yes. a shame when young people die because they don't really have a chance to make anything right, you know? No. Yeah. So later on, the Smith slash Walsh family would weather another tragedy when Jean's eldest son committed suicide in the same month, which was November, that baby Kellyanne had died. So that was a rough oh. time of year for Jean. Despite these losses, Sheila and Carrie had a mostly happy upbringing. Don left the military and the family moved to Salem, Oregon, where Sheila was considered a bright, beautiful, and popular student. She was a really petite and really cute blonde. She stood like barely five feet tall and was around 100 pounds for most of her adult life. She was in the National Honor Society and was a pretty generally great role model for her younger sister, Carrie. Sheila was very independent and self-sufficient. She decided to take a business class that would allow her to launch directly into a professional life right out of high school rather than going to college. Okay. After the course, she found a great job at one of the top law firms in Salem, and she planned to learn everything she could about the law, save up enough money to go back for her undergraduate degree, and then potentially go to law school herself someday. Okay, cool. Yeah. She had like a plan. I love it when people have a plan where they're like, I'm going to go out and get some real life work experience. And then I'm going to go back and get my education after I've like really made sure that this is the direction I want to go in, you know? Yeah. Versus like <laughs> being in college for eight years and not knowing what you want to do. Yeah. Which is basically like when I went to college, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. This seems cool. I like this place, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm always like very impressed when people are like already planning a career and not just like college as a stopgap to figure out what they're doing, you know? Yeah. A very expensive <laughs> stopgap. Very expensive and costly stopgap. Sorry, parents. So, yeah, she did actually really have a passion for law. She was very organized. She was very good at her job. She was very motivated. So, the sky was really the limit. And then in the fall of 1982, when Sheila was 20 years old, she met a man who would alter the course of the rest of her life. 
They always his do. His name. Those men. They always do. And it's it's always for better or for worse. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be spoiling too much when I tell you this one was for worse. His name was Alan Van Hout. Ugh, Alan. Alan. So Alan was a client of the law firm and he was, in fact, getting a divorce. That's what he was using the law firm for. Though Sheila wouldn't find out until later that there had already been more than one former Mrs. Van Hout. So he's already super messy. He's already so messy and she had no idea. We're going to talk a little bit about them and then I'm going to go back and talk about Alan more and you will be shook. So Alan was 27. He was 6'2". He was pretty handsome with a thick mop of dark brown hair. And there was a way that he had of talking to people and dressing and carrying himself where even when he was going through monetary problems, he always like had the air of a very successful person. Okay. Yeah. So she was like very impressed with him right away right away, even though he did tell her that he was going through bankruptcy because he said that his ex... So he's a con man. (laughs) Yeah, he's a con man. (laughs) This is what you're trying to say. Wow, you got there in like 30 seconds, man. I just started this story. How did you get there so fast? (laughs) Yes, he had uh, the the confidence of a con man. Let's just go there. He had the confidence. He's a con man. (laughs) Let's just see he's a con man. (laughs) Yes, he was. I think like in 13 pages, I say like, so let's break it down. Alan was a con man. (laughs) But you got there on page four of my entire script. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Andy. Uh, So, yes, Alan was a con man and he was in bankruptcy, although he claimed to Sheila it was because his ex who he was divorcing had taken him to the cleaners. So Sheila was not a con woman. She was a bright, beautiful, smart, young woman who was only 20 years old. And that was exactly what Alan was looking for. So he impressed her with his plans to franchise his stereo and electronic store. Uh huh. He talked a big game. There's like a whole paragraph here about leading up to him being a con man that I can skip <laughs> now. <laughs> No, you can still do it. You can still do it for all of our non-cynicist listeners. Yes, but he did fail to mention some pretty key aspects of his past. All Sheila knew, and thus all her parents, Jean and Don, knew, was that Alan had had a rough upbringing and that he had become a self-made success. So Jean and Don warmed up to Alan right away, and he definitely ingratiated himself by calling them the mom and dad that he had never had. Oh, tugging at the heartstrings. Yes, absolutely, because they're good people. You know, they're salt-of-the-earth people, and they also just want the best for, you know, their daughter. But yeah, if this seems a little too fast, it's because it was. Alan proposed to Sheila on their third date. What? Yeah. Did did she have any red flags with that? Because that's like a mage red flag to me. I mean, she just was completely swept away. I mean, I think, guys, make yourself a rule when you're young. Like, I'm not going to get married until X age. I definitely knew that I didn't want to get married until I was like 26. And I might have based that because my mom was 26 when she got married. But I remember feeling like, okay, I am going to, no matter what happens, I'm not going to get married until this date because 
I guess I just didn't trust myself to make good decisions. Yeah, no, and I, I think know. That, that was wise. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of you guys who are like mature beyond your years. You know, I have a couple friends who got married very young and they knew exactly what they were doing and they were already mature. Opposite for me where I didn't want to get married until I was in my 30s because of divorce. Yep, exactly. So I think that's you do take lessons from your parents for sure. 100%. So yeah, so she... I feel like she was young and this guy totally swept her off her feet. So they got married only four or five months after meeting. And they also, I realized when I was writing down the dates, they got married on Sheila's parents' anniversary, on Jean and Don's anniversary as well. So I'm having my own personal red flag over here because I married Nathaniel in five months on my parents' and grandparents' and great-grandparents' anniversary. (laughs) So yeah, big red flag. I mean, another red flag was that the reason why they waited four or five months to get married was because he had to wait for his divorce to be finalized. Yeah, that's never a good sign. Which I really do think is a red flag. Unless like your partner has been, you know, separated for many years and they just never officially, you know, did the paperwork. That's one thing. But when it's a recent breakup and you're just like rushing to get married like the day after and the they're a con man. Finalized. And they're a con man. But how is one to know what a con man is unless they listen to our show? And if they're 20. I mean, it's like you're 20, 20 years old as a child. Oh my gosh. When I was 24, I dated a guy who was such a con man. He didn't con me out of anything other than like my heart and my <laughs> life for almost a year. <laughs> I didn't lose any money or anything. Just lost precious years of my youth. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, obviously she had no idea that this was a bad decision, but it was not the best way to start a marriage. However, she also didn't know because like, I think a lot of times when you're young, you count on your parents to kind of like be the bullshit detector. And she was still living with Jean and Don at this point. So, you know, she brought Alan home and they loved him. They really thought he was the best guy for her. You know, he really worked his charm on them and they adored him. So they liked him so much. They even let Alan move in with them and they invested their retirement funds in his electronic store. Ooh. Yes, as your facial expression and noises indicate, this was a mistake that would cost them greatly. So who is this sleazy guy with a murky past? It's Alan. So let's talk Alan. So William Allen Van Hout was born in June of 1955 to teen parents, 16-year-old Karen and 19-year-old Guy. Both teenagers had had troubled childhoods. Alan's father had been abandoned by his own mother when he was only three years old. While Alan's maternal grandfather had been a pedophiliac Pentecostal preacher who had molested young children. Yeah, that's a pretty poisonous tree right there. So, yeah, there's a a quick trigger warning, guys. We're going to mention child sexual abuse in this in this part. And then there's going to be a part later on. I will not go into any details about it, but it will be mentioned. So a relative said about Alan's grandfather, he picked up young male waifs for his own reasons. He taught children how to have sex. Um, 
I don't think children need to be taught how to have sex. No, they absolutely do not. But that was what this relative said about him. He was caught and convicted. So at that point, Alan's grandmother did divorce him. And she remarried another man whom she had more children with, some close in age to Alan himself, after all, because his mother was, you know, 16 when he was born. Yeah. Karen, who was Alan's mother, was said to be cruel even as a child. Her half-sister, Debbie, said that she was prone to fits of temper and violence. And another trigger warning for animal abuse here and in one more section of this story today, guys. Sorry. She enjoyed putting frogs on the farm's electrical fence, and she would laugh as they thrashed until they died. Yeah, so she's a serial killer. So, yeah, so this is where Alan has, you know, we talk about nature nurture. This is the nature coming out here. Karen and Guy wed in 1954 after Karen accidentally got pregnant, and they welcomed Alan in 1955. But I should say that Karen welcomed Alan because Guy had already peaced out on the marriage and his growing family before Alan was even born. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Karen, who obviously isn't the greatest person anyways if she's torturing frogs, was now 16 years old, totally alone with a new baby and no help whatsoever. Yeah, what's her family situation? Well, her dad was the the molester preacher. Yeah, so this is not a good situation. Yeah, and this was not a a Gilmore Girls feel-good story about a scrappy single mother and her precocious and loving child. (laughs) This was not. Alan and Karen hated each other. Just hate, hate, hated each other. They would both later go on record saying that the other person had ruined their life. Like she said, her son ruined her life. I got it. And he, I got yeah. it. Like this one's crazy for a mother. Yeah. But she probably should have never been a mother. Huh? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So Debbie, who was the sister of Karen from the non-molester father, but the same mother, remembered Alan as a fairly average little boy with a mischievous streak, but a streak that tipped into cruelty as he grew. So Alan was raised when he was young, primarily by his maternal grandparents, which was, you know, um, Karen's mother and her new husband. Well, his parents both went on to remarry several times. Alan's dad, Guy, had already been married three times and had eight children by 1970 when he was 34. Did he care for any of them or did he? Three of them. So he had completely abandoned the first five. Wow. And then he was married to his third wife for just about a decade. So in during that decade, he actually raised those children. Might have been a little bit more than a decade that he was married to her. His third marriage was his most successful. And he had three um, boys in that marriage. And he actually was there for most of their youth. Meanwhile, Karen married four times, producing five more children after Alan. So six total. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she suffered some really horrible tragedies. I mean, this woman's life was not good or easy. Her second husband was physically abusive towards her and she would give just as good as she got, apparently. They often put each other into the hospital. Karen once hit him with a frying pan, knocking him out cold to the point where he had to be hospitalized. 
and that he had once broken her nose with a baseball bat. And even after surgery, they said her face was never the same. Yeah, though, this one is really sad. So apparently this couple who was already in a terrible situation, they had a baby daughter together and they had a friend who was a logger. And so they were essentially waiting for this logger friend to come around this corner and they were meeting up for some reason. And they had parked the car and they left the baby sleeping in the car because the baby was passed out. And then they went to to like, just like right around the corner so they could watch the logging truck come down the highway. And the logger lost control of the truck. Something happened with the brakes and smashed into the car. And they watched as their car was like obliterated by this huge logging truck and their baby daughter was killed who was sleeping inside. I can't think of anything worse in the world. So after that tragedy, the couple divorced and she went on to marry husband number three. Well, get this. Husband number three's ex-wife married her last husband. So they like swap spouses. What? They were the TV <laughs> show before the TV show existed? Yeah, they were like um, kind of like Shania Twain's husband had an affair with that woman and then she ended up married to the woman's husband, remember? Yeah. 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 So basically that happened. So that. So exactly that, basically. Alan wasn't with his mother often, but when she did care for him, he claimed that she abused him horribly. Now, there was some people who said he exaggerated. One claim that he made was that she beat him with a board, like a two-by-four board. And people thought that this one might be true. Her sister said that she knew her to beat her children and she had beat her children with a board. One story that they thought maybe Alan went too far in telling was when he claimed that she had set him on fire. Casually. Like casually, he claimed that she had set him on fire. And people said that they didn't believe that that was the truth and that Alan had a propensity for stretching the truth. But he was definitely abused in some capacity. Mm. And she was definitely a pretty violent lady. There was no doubt of that. After Alan was out of the house, she apparently shot husband number three with a 22 six times in the groin. Yeah, somehow he miraculously- No, 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 no. Came out of that intact somehow. But that's not even the whole point of the story was that apparently he was somehow fine after she shot him six times in the groin with a 22. So she decided she wanted to do some real damage went across the house to get the shotgun out. And for whatever reason, I'm assuming there was some sort of alcohol involved in this. She was dragging the shotgun across the floor, holding the barrel of the gun. And the trigger caught on something and fired as she was holding the barrel of the gun. And it hit her in the shoulder, arm, breast, and stomach. She ended up losing her arm. How did she live? I do not know. They said that she was plagued by other injuries from that one shotgun blast that also like stayed with her for the rest of her life. I mean, oof. Needless to say, Alan had absolutely no role models to look up to and three out of six of Karen's children ended up in prison for very serious offenses. 
Alan bounced around. He lived with his Aunt Debbie and her husband Tom for a little while before finally moving in with his absent father, Guy, and his new family when he was a troubled 16-year-old. Guy, by the way, hadn't told his third wife about his previous two marriages or the five children he had had before her. So she was just a wee bit surprised when he announced that a 16-year-old son was coming to live with them. Oh, my God. (laughs) Can you imagine? Babe, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. And he's not the only one. I have four other kids I've never told you about. But hopefully they don't have to come live with me. Hopefully they just stay in hiding forever. Unbelievable. So... Like I said, this was the marriage that was the most successful out of, I think Guy was married like four times, then he had a longtime girlfriend at some point. And the children at this point were 12, 10, and three years old. So the older two boys were actually really excited about finding out that they had an older teen brother they hadn't known about. And they were like completely enthralled with getting to know Alan at first. And What Anne Rule described in her book was this first meeting when the children and Guy and his wife went to Debbie and Tom's farm to pick up Alan so that he could come live with them. So this is what happened from every breath you take. Alan approached them, cradling a duck in his arms. Now remember, these kids are 12 and 10 at the time. He said, this is quacky. And he was petting it and cooing. He introduced them to the duck and explained that it was his pet, and the younger boys leaned forward to stroke it. He's my favorite, Alan said with a grin. Suddenly, his words tumbled out rapidly. But I can't take him with me because I'm going to live with you guys. Before the boys could react, Alan tossed the hapless duck into a hog pen next to him. (gasps) He laughed as the pigs leapt upon the duck, tearing it to pieces instantly, Feathers and blood spraying grotesquely. Bruce and Randy stared at him shocked. Neither of them would ever forget the first moment when they met Alan or the shredded remains of the duck in the mud of the hog wallow. Poor Quacky. Uh, Poor Quacky, but also, y'all see what I'm talking about with pigs here? They're bad. Yeah. They're bad. Those piggies are bad. Except for those tiny little pot-bellied ones. They're real cute. Yeah, or the like really miniature ones. We do. We actually, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. One of our listeners has a really cute pig and she posted pictures of it on the discussion group. And she's like, Jesse, every time you talk about how much you hate pigs, (laughs) really hurts my baby's feeling. And it is a very cute pig. So I guess apologies. Is it a micro pig? (laughs) No, it looks like, it's not like a, like not like a little teacup guy, but it's like, it's like still like small, like a small dog size, I think. Indoors? Indoors, yeah. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that journey. So, yeah, because you can imagine how these kids felt about this monster coming to live with them. They were, they described it as being like completely fascinated with him and terrified of him at the same time. Yeah, it's like watching a car accident. Yes. They called his room the room of horrors. He would create fun games in which he would tie the boys up and do terrible things. Or he had a game where he would literally have like the neighborhood children like run around and he would cast a fishing line at them with the hook, trying to embed the hook in their flesh. Oh my God. And these were the games he was playing. Yeah. It sounds like so much fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So they completely also were very impressed that he always seemed to get out of trouble. Like no matter what he did, no matter how sadistic, he somehow just kind of like squeeze out of trouble. Even when he attempted to rape and strangle a girl while he was in high school. Uh... Yeah, this was apparently a friend, like they had a, a playmate who was their age and their older sister was the same age as Alan or like a year or two younger. And he had an interest in her. She thought he was cute. They ended up going out and then he tried to rape and kill her. And the family was so shaken from it that they didn't end up even pressing charges. They just moved to a new town. They literally left town because of the incident. Whoa. But again, he got off scot-free. There was no repercussions for him. So yeah, after one year of having Alan terrorize the home, Guy's third wife put her foot down and kicked the sociopathic youth out. At 17 years old, Alan was finally on his own. Guy gave wife number three the boot too, not so long after, and went on to have a total of nine children with five different women. Whoa, daddy. So crazy. So no one really knows for sure what Alan was doing for the few years between the times he was like 17 and 20. His father and some others claimed that he had joined a cult similar to the Moonies, which was kind of a very extreme splinter Christian group, from what I gathered, at least. Alan himself later told people that he was attending Stanford University during this era, but that was a huge lie. He never attended any form (laughs) of college or university. Those con men, like, love throwing out an Ivy League. Which is so easy (laughs) to check. It's so easy to check, and they all do it. I know. They're like Harvard, Cornell, Stanford, Yale. It's like, come on. Guys, like at least make it like Wesleyan or something, you know? Like Like a good school, but like, you know, not an Ivy. (laughs) So funny. In 1973, Alan joined the army, and he married his high school girlfriend, a woman who is pseudonymed Ellen in Anne Rule's book. So Ellen did not realize until far too late that her reunited high school sweetheart was completely psychotic. Ellen had brought her German shepherd puppy. I guess it was like a young dog. It was like that kind of funny age where they're not quite adult dogs, but they're like not quite puppies anymore, you know? Yeah, their paws are still too big for their body. Yeah, and they're still just like a little goofy and have a lot of energy. And so she already had the dog when she and Alan got married. And one day they were like out having a good time for the day. And Alan didn't want to go back home to take care of the dog. And so Alan was like, well, I'd really like to get home to take care of the dog. But it's fine if you don't want to. You know, it's just that she's probably going to make a mess, you know, as animals or anything living thing will if you don't take care of them, you know. Yep. So when they got home, obviously, the dog had defecated on the floor and Alan went absolutely berserk and ended up beating the dog to death with a board. What? Yeah, which is interesting in so far as it being a board because that was what his mother used to beat him. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the abuse was not limited to animals, however. He also was extremely physically abusive to Ellen, once kicking her so hard in the stomach while she was pregnant that she was forced to have an abortion. I mean, I would have left his ass after he killed the dog. 
100%. We talked about that with Catherine Knight, remember? Yeah. That guy yep. went back to her too. Yeah. It's like, after you kill the dog, it's she's kind of Dunsville on the relationship. I don't know how you come back from that. Don't you think? Alan would also report later that Alan had sexual peccadilloes that ranged from, you know, slightly odd and a little kinky to completely violent and scary. She said that he liked cross-dressing, forcing partners to have sex in front of an audience and often choked or demanded to be choked during sex. She even talked about how he wanted her to drown him in a bathtub during sex until he passed out. And if she woke him up before he orgasmed him, he would beat her. The timing on that is not easy. No, it's really not easy to figure out. So in any case, Ellen suffered through just about five years of this terrible, abusive marriage. And then she finally got the courage and the resources to leave him. So their divorce was finalized on January 30th, 1978. Alan would pretend that this marriage never existed, telling his next unfortunate wife that she was his only marriage. What? How can can you even do that? I think you have to fill out paperwork. Well, he just pretended like he had never been married before. I mean, I think it's very rare that somebody goes into it and is like, I'm going to run a background check on you. Although I I think we should maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I just remember filling out the court paperwork and it saying, like, is this your first marriage? But you can say no. I mean, you can lie on it, you know? So shady. Yeah. I mean, he's shady as shady hell, this guy. He's slim shady. He's not slim, though. He's, like, fat shady because <laughs> it's a lot of shade. <laughs> you know? During the marriage to Alan, Alan had left the army and moved to Tacoma, Washington to help his father guy sell disco setups, which was like disco clubs. Essentially, he designed and helped do the electronics for disco shows. So he would like put in the floors and the disco balls and the lights and all that stuff. So cool. Yeah, which is a super cool and very interesting job. He would say his like claim to fame was that he designed the set for Saturday Night Fever. Did he? I don't know, because Guy was kind of a liar, too. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, did you? Yeah. So anyways, they sold these, like, disco setups to clubs all over the Pacific Northwest. And when disco dried up in the early 80s, Alan went off on his own to open Capital Hi-Fi and Stereo in Salem, Oregon, where he met wife number two, a single mother named Mary Kelly. So he and Mary were married, he and Mary were married, after a quick courtship in November of 1979. Alan himself would admit that the marriage did not get off to a great start. He left for a trip to Taipei the day after they were married that was supposed to last for six weeks. And instead, the trip stretched into nine months. Imagine your new husband is gone for nine months. Yeah, that's called he's found someone else. Yeah, but sadly, that nine months was probably the best part of her actual marriage to Alan. Altogether, she survived three years of hell with the guy, suffering similar types of domestic abuse and sexual humiliations like Alan had. When Mary gathered her strength, she ran from the marriage while Alan was on a business trip. She stayed with Alan's Uncle Tom and Aunt Debbie while she was on the run. 
So here's what they had to say about this. She had her two children and her pet bird with her, Tom recalled. She stayed two days with us. They could see that Mary was as frightened of Alan as Ellen had been, and they felt sorry for her. Since she had run to them for protection, they sheltered her. When she pulled herself together, she left heading south, and then she completely disappeared. Sometime later, the Olivers stopped in a restaurant in Mount Shasta, California, and were surprised to look up and see that their waitress was Mary. Her face turned pale, and she started to run away. But they had seen her, and Tom hurried after her, explaining gently that they were no threat to her. Mary was so afraid they would tell Alan where she was, and she begged them not to. It's No, this is terrifying. She said, Alan told me he'd kill my children if I left. So Tom said, we told her not to worry and that we would never tell Alan that we'd seen her or where she was. And of course, they never did. Oh, bless them. So this was the monster that 20-year-old Sheila married after only knowing him for four or five months. Yeah, no. And that is the woman that he was claiming was like this total bitch that was taking him to the cleaners. She ran away with her life. She didn't get shit. Nothing from him. Ugh, gross. Yeah, so he was just an idiot and he did bad business and he was using the divorce as a reason why he was going into bankruptcy when really it was his own decisions, obviously. So even before Sheila married Alan, he attempted to sexually assault her sister, Carrie, who was only 15 years old at the time. What? Uh-huh. While they were at home, Carrie was sleeping in her bed and she woke up to find Alan lying on top of her. Carrie later said that he whispered, hey, this is okay. We're just keeping it in the family. There's nothing wrong with that. And she managed to fight him off and escape. And then after that, she was never, ever alone with him. Like, if she was, like, in a situation where she had to be, she'd get up and leave the room. Wow. But she didn't tell Sheila or her parents what she was going through because, number one, she said that Sheila was really happy. And I think that, like a lot of teenagers do, she had a lot of self-doubt. Like, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I did something to make him think this was okay. You know, and she also said that her whole family was completely under Alan's spell. So she's like, there was no way anyone was going to believe me anyway. I was like some punk kid and he was this supposedly successful, wonderful husband for my amazing older sister, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Only a few months after the wedding, Sheila was pregnant. Alan had already picked out two names he liked that could work for either boy or a girl. He wanted to name his children, especially if they were girls, after Stevie Nicks and Daryl Hannah. So Sheila thought that the names were cool. I mean, both those women were super duper cool. And she liked the idea of traditionally boys' names on girls. So she was all for it. Only much, much later would anyone discover why Alan had wanted to name his daughters such masculine names. They would go on to have a second daughter, and they would indeed name her Daryl. And that was because, this is so unbelievable. I like actually audibly gasped when I was listening to the Enroll book. So he gave both girls, Stevie and Daryl, the middle name Lee which obviously Lee is a name that can be either masculine or feminine as well. And this was in case he needed to steal their identities later. Oh 
my God. He's really, he's really like putting forth the like prep work. That's like before they're even born. He's like, how can I use this to my advantage? That's bananas. He's the conniest con con. He really is. I mean, this huckster actually planned on using his daughter's social security numbers before they were even born. If there was a con man award show, he would definitely win con man of the century. I honestly do think he is the conniest con man we've had, don't you? So far, yeah. And we're 84 episodes in. Mm Mm-hmm. But that is not the worst thing that he did while Sheila was pregnant with Stevie. Not by a long shot. On September 8th, 1983, only six months into their marriage, Sheila and Alan were driving on a highway when a motorcyclist on a Harley with a woman on the back passed Alan. Now, this frustrated Alan, so he sped up to overtake the bike. Oh, my God. And now... They got into a back and forth and the motorcyclist and Alan were basically like bobbing and weaving, changing lanes very dangerously. They were like essentially racing one another. Well, of course, Sheila's pregnant and she's crying and she's begging him to just let it go. Of course. And at that point, the motorcyclist tried to cut right in front of Alan. And instead of you know, slowing down, Alan accelerated and deliberately smashed his car into the Harley. I knew that's where you were going. The biker, a man named David Keith Taylor, was killed instantly. And his female passenger, Nancy Jane Kirk, was thrown over the top of Alan's car but she managed to grab the trunk and was clinging for her life, holding on to the trunk of their car. No. So at that point, of course, Sheila's hysterical and she's like, you have to pull over. The woman's on our car. Pull over, pull over, pull over. And instead, he starts driving faster and purposely swerving to like throw her off the car. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. He already killed one person. Yep. So at one point he starts doing the swerving again and this woman flew off the car and she ended up being sent down like a, like almost like a ravine. Like she like flew down this embankment and somehow she survived, but she was in critical condition and she was hospitalized, I think for months afterwards. Andy, it's the new year. And I'm feeling like I want to try something different. Like I want to reinvent my style. And that's why I went to Ana Luisa Jewelry. Ana Luisa Jewelry is made for you and the planet in mind. They are 100% carbon and water neutral, but also really pretty if you ask me. Their versatile designs are perfect to mix and match and wear every day. I even layer my necklaces together now. I had such a hard time choosing just one to wear, so why not wear two or three? Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, has timeless jewelry for any occasion. A cute ring to show off at the grocery store when you pay for groceries, a dainty bracelet for when you pick up an iced coffee, and luxurious necklaces that make your friends think she's making a lot of money with a necklace like that. (laughs) But the best part is Ana Luisa jewelry starts at $39. The prices are incredible. With our code LOVEMURDER, you can get 40% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. At Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. 
Their pieces are the perfect gift for anybody on your list. A friend, a partner, a sister-in-law, a daughter to spoil. Plus, the gift guide on their website along with their bestsellers page are great destinations to browse most gifted options. So while you're getting yourself a new necklace, throw one in for your sister. Why not? You're getting 40% off anyways. Yeah, and how about one for your best friend? Yep. New jewelry collections are released every Friday. Get yourself and your loved ones the perfect gift with up to 40% off. Check out Ana Luisa at shop.analuisa.com slash lovemurder. I know you'll love them. For fans of true crime podcasts, Generation Y is essential listening. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin look into the case of funeral home owner Dan O'Connell and his intern James Allison, who were both found shot to death in Dan's office. The murder went unsolved. Years later, while investigating a separate case, detectives interviewed a Catholic priest, Father Ryan Erickson, and he revealed information only the killer and detectives knew about the double murder. Then Father Ryan hanged himself. (gasps) With their only suspect, now deceased, police and the community grappled with the questions left. Did a Catholic priest kill two men? And if so, why? Jesse, Generation Y is just one of those true crime shows that hits all the right notes. Yep, these guys are one of the quintessential pioneers in the true crime space. And I think part of it is how they can tell these true crime stories with such empathy. The other part being, I like banter true crime podcasts. I mean, that's why I made one. And I like it though with just like the right amount and they have the perfect amount of banter that's not too much and they still just get right into the story. Totally. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining the Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. It's just unbelievable. And of course, being the murderous scumbag that he is, he just left the scene naturally. But enough people had seen what happened and even got his license plate that the police did catch up with him later. Good. And his wife is pregnant in the car. It's just beyond the pale. So they did catch up with him. They arrested him. And he told the authorities that the biker had been harassing him, had been threatening them, had been cutting him off, and that he was only driving defensively to protect his pregnant wife course. So Alan completely gaslit Sheila into almost believing this version of events. Like he nailed it into her over and over again. Like, no, honey, I was just protecting you. Like, I'm sure it seemed scary at the time, but you know, he was really dangerous and aggressive. And I was just making sure that we weren't thrown off the road, that you were okay. But she did tell Carrie and some select people later on about this story. So deep down, she knew that he had just murdered this guy. Yeah. But at the time, she said that she was really confused. She was pregnant. She was young. She was a newlywed. And she was scared to death. So she ended up backing up Alan's account to the authorities. Yeah. I mean, what else do you do in that situation at that age? Yeah. I mean, other than deciding to leave your husband and testify against him and, you know, stay with your parents and, you know, have your child with them. I mean, you could do that, but I think she was genuinely scared of him Terrified, now. yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, Alan and Sheila welcomed baby Stevie in March of 1984, and the following month, Alan stood trial for vehicular manslaughter. But on April 26th of that same year, a mistrial was declared when the jury could not render a verdict. The case against Alan was dismissed. Uh, Just like when he was younger, sliding out of trouble. Yep. Despite this pesky legal issue, Jean and Don mostly thought that things were going great for their daughter, son-in-law, and new granddaughter. The small family had rented a home nearby. Don co-signed a loan for Alan to buy a Porsche. And Don was also very, very generous. He would allow Alan to use his boat. He would use his truck. He would use his van. Basically, Don was like, whatever I have is yours. You're like a son to me. But over the summer of 1984, Don was shocked when he was notified that his driver's license was being taken away because of his failure to pay traffic tickets. So he was like going, what? I've never missed anything. What's happening? He found out that Alan, apparently Don left his driver's license like in the console of his one of his cars. And Alan was giving people his driver's license. Yep. And even worse... While borrowing Don's vehicles, Alan had stolen the titles, somehow changed the owner to himself, and sold some of them. He sold Don's hydroplane, his van, and his pickup truck. He also found out that he was using Don's social security number and had completely trashed his credit. (gasps) Oh, and all of the retirement money that Don had invested in Alan's sham electronics store, poof, gone, completely gone. So uh, he, I don't even know if he had a store. So basically what he had told Don, he's like, my collateral for, you know, this loan is I have a warehouse full of electronics, you know? And so when Don found out all of this stuff was going on, he was like, well, wait, I can still go to this warehouse and I can at least sell the electronic goods. And when he went, it was like all busted up old TVs that were like broken and not working. It was nothing that was even sellable. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So poor Jean and Don had to file for bankruptcy. Sheila and Alan had only been married for a year and a half, and he's already pulling this shit on her family. So much damage in a year. So much damage. He's killed a guy, almost permanently disabled a woman. He has completely uh, fleeced and stolen everything from Sheila's family and sexually assaulted her teenage sister. Yep. So, of course, instead of owning up to his crimes, Alan took Sheila and Stevie to Hawaii to set up a new life and company and burned the bridge to Sheila's family forever. Yep. Sounds right. Yeah. Sounds par for course with this guy. So, Sheila was also horrified, but basically she later said that he used her Christianity against her in this case because he told her when this whole thing was going down that the Bible says that when you marry, you must leave your parents and cleave unto your husband Uh, as her Christian duty. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So after many tears, Sheila obeyed her husband and suffered a very long estrangement from her mother and the man who had been a true father to her. Yep. 
Meanwhile, poor Don and Jean were just trying to save their house at this point at a time when they should have been enjoying their retirement. Sociopaths really ruin it for the whole family. Oh, yeah. In Honolulu, Alan launched a new business with his father, Guy, and one of his brothers. He had been spending a lot of time in Asia and had found a device that stimulated muscles with electric pulses. So they ended up, I'm like imagining those like workout things where they tell you you can get like abs without yeah, working out, yep, you know? Yep, yep. So they bought like a whole crap ton of these in Asia and then marketed them in Hawaii as the Health Tronic, which that name too. So dated. So Sheila got pregnant with baby number two, which was of course little girl Daryl, but she was so, so miserable So Carrie was the only family member who hadn't given up on Sheila and she came to visit her in Hawaii and she was struck. I guess she stayed for like a month while Sheila was pregnant. She said that even though Sheila was pregnant, she was emaciated. I mean, she was like skin and bones with this little pregnant belly and she was covered with bruises. (gasps) Stop. But Sheila, Sheila would not admit to any abuse. And Alan was smart enough to not beat Sheila in front of Carrie, of course. So it it is confirmed that she he was beating her because he I was. feel like, okay, because also when you like lose a ton of weight too, like you bruise easily as well. So yep. she was like, it probably even looked that much worse if he was actually beating her. That's horrible. He, he was, yeah. So one of his siblings, so I'm not sure if it was the brother he was in business with or if it was a different half-sibling because, you know, he had eight of them. But another sibling said that they came to Hawaii once and they, like, walked into the home at a time that, like, Alan didn't know that they were going to be there. And he had little Sheila, who is, you know, barely five foot tall, and he's 6'2", up against a wall like he was holding her up by the throat and her legs were dangling. And he was like screaming in her face. My God. Yeah. So there was 100% physical abuse happening in this relationship. Ugh. God, that makes me sick. Yeah. And Sheila, she just kept trying to deal with everything herself for a very long, long time. So only a month after Daryl Lee Van Hout was born in July of 1985, Alan was in legal trouble again. Alan had been selling these healthtronic devices to people saying that they were FDA approved when they were not, which is a no-no. So the increased stress only made Alan lash out at Sheila more. So this poor woman, she is a month postpartum. Stevie was only 16 months old when Daryl was born. So she has like these two kids that are like 16 months and younger. And Alan was abusing her. And he even accused her of cheating on him because he didn't think that newborn Daryl looked enough like him. Shut the fuck up. It's just, I don't even have words. Yeah. Well, it turned out that that was some classic projection and gaslighting because Alan was the one cheating on Sheila left and right. Of course. Naturally, sleeping with people who worked for him and hiring sex workers to scratch his most perverse itches. So when the FDA closed down his business, he once again left family members holding the bag. He spirited his family away to Texas, leaving Guy and brother Randy with a warehouse full of useless devices and a huge debt owed to the Bank of Hawaii. 
to Alan's immense frustration, Guy actually managed to get the devices working per FDA guidelines. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, he apparently was an electronic genius. He was like really good at electrical engineering. And so he made some electronic modifications, formed a new company, got FDA approval and actually turned this disaster into a success. Okay, I kind of love that for Guy. Right? Guy and Alan did some very surface level like dealings with each other in business for a little while after that. But for the most part, they were completely estranged and they never had a relationship after that. Guy said that it was like the classic tale of a Roman warrior who realized the man lying on the ground beneath his sword was his own father. And even then, even after he realized it, he plunged the sword through his heart. Yeah. Guy also liked to recall a conversation he once had had with Alan about eternity. You may go to heaven, Alan had told his father flatly. I won't because I've sold my soul to the devil. Oh, nice. I mean, I don't necessarily feel that bad for Guy because it's like you abandoned him for his first 16 years of life. What do you expect? You expect like the most loving father-son relationship ever, you know? Exactly, yeah. By Christmas 1985, Carrie was married to a lovely old schoolmate of Sheila's named Rick Bladorn. So this is actually kind of a cute story. So when Carrie was like a lot younger and Sheila was in high school, Carrie adored Rick. They had been like um, lab partners for some class. Okay. And apparently Carrie had tried really hard to set Rick and Sheila up and told Sheila repeatedly that Rick was the guy that she should marry. And Sheila and Rick were like, I don't know what you're talking about, you 13-year-old. Like, we're not going to end up together. We don't even like each other. Like, they're, you know, the other person's nice, but we're not attracted to each other. And like later, Rick ran into Carrie and Carrie was like, oh, I just liked you. (laughs) (laughs) It all makes sense now. And now she's grown up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the two very adorably got married. And as far as I could see, they're still married to this day. So that's really, really cute. So in Christmas of 1985, they were expecting their first baby. They hosted Sheila Allen and the girls for that holiday. And Carrie noticed that her older sister, who had always been so independent, so self-sufficient, so bright, was basically just like folding in on herself. She was like disappearing. And like if they were playing cards or something, like Alan was constantly putting her down, insulting her. And it just seemed like he had just been chipping away at who she really was, you know? Okay. So one day Carrie was like kind of trying to warn him, but like also make it like a joke, you know? She was like, hey... You know, maybe you should be a little nicer to her. You never know. She might leave you someday. And apparently what he said back was so chilling. He looked at her without an ounce of humor and said straight to her face, if she leaves me, Carrie, I'll kill her and I'll take the girls. Wow. Yeah. So Carrie was like, whoa, this is a very bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. In 1986, the family settled into San Antonio, Texas, and Alan changed the family name from Van Hout to Blackthorn. I can't even believe that Carrie's, like, Carrie's so brave to even, like, be around him at all. Yeah, after what she went through with yep. him personally, even. Yep. Yeah, she's a she's a tough chick. And I think that it's a very 
fine line when you are advocating for a loved one and dealing with a psychopath, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But it's just, she's brave. So Alan would say that he changed the family name because he was renouncing his father because obviously they had gone through that break. And he also would claim at this point that he didn't even know if Guy was his real biological father, but they looked so much alike. It, it really? seems pretty obvious that the two were nearly identical. He was absolutely <laughs> Guy's, which I feel like is just like, it's like a knock on his mother and on his father to be like, I don't even know if you're my real dad because it's kind of like a fuck you to both of them, you know? Totally. So in reality, this whole name change was an effort to avoid authorities and creditors that he owed money to. Of course. Did he kill off one of his daughters and take her name yet? (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. So the name Blackthorn came from a character named John Blackthorn, who I guess there was a novel called Shogun. And then there was later on a very popular miniseries in the 80s called Shogun based on this novel. Okay. And this character was played by Richard Chamberlain. And it was all about a clever Englishman stranded in 15th century Japan. And apparently he thought he was like this clever Englishman. So that's why he gave himself the name Blackthorn. And I can't even get into it without making this embarrassed for you, Alan. Yeah, it's just so cringeworthy. So Sheila got a job at a law firm in San Antonio, and she was doing her best to start establishing independence. So she was able to leave Alan once and for all. Yep. But she was rightfully terrified. Carrie said that Sheila acknowledged a grim truth. Over the phone in 1987, she said, Carrie, if I stay, he'll kill me. And if I leave, he'll kill me. But at least I'll have a fighting chance. And maybe I can keep my girls safe. I feel like we've heard that before somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, you gotta try, you know? Yeah. So Alan had started a new business in Texas called EMS that did a very similar thing. In fact, the reason why- Wait, 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 wait. Can I guess what it does? No, it's like the same thing. Yeah, where he like borrows money from loved ones and then like blows it all. That kind of business? Well, yeah, but he actually (laughs) was successful this time. So. Yes, he was. So he uh, apparently the only reason he and Guy were in touch was that when Guy succeeded at the business, he did sell some of the devices that were now FDA approved to Alan, which then, of course, Alan like ripped his dad off and like figured out how to manufacture them cheaper, you know? Oh, my God. So, yeah. So this one actually was kind of a success. This was the the star of Alan who ends up becoming a multi-multi-millionaire. I Stop mean, it. nope, he really does. He is a very, very successful con man. So this was like the first almost legitimate money that he was making. And at this point, he really thought he had complete control over Sheila. He no longer even tried to cover up his sexual extracurricular activities. He went so far as to move one of his mistresses into the house with Sheila and their daughters. What? I mean, no shame whatsoever. When this mistress wised up and moved out, Alan started having an affair with a fiance of a salesman who worked for him. Oh my God. Yeah. He's just running that power card. 
Yeah, I think that he had had like some words with this particular employee, and he's yeah. like, "Well, watch I'm this. Gonna I'm fuck gonna your fuck wife. your fiance." Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And the the employee talked to Ann Rule, and he said that the affair had ended after he and his, you know, this guy's fiance. Uh, got into a fight and Alan threw their child across the room and the baby got a broken arm. Oh my God. I do not know. He must've paid them off or something. Cause it didn't mention in the book that he was arrested for assault child abuse? or anything. Yeah. Yep. So anyways, that ended too. Also, Sheila actually confided in a few of his employees at this point that, you know, knew of how bad things were that she was also being abused and that Alan was forcing her to do some really sick things that she didn't want to do. Apparently he forced her to hire male sex workers and watch while they tied him up and whipped him. Okay. So she was just telling a a group of people apparently like that it was like really bad and that she wanted to get out and she needed help, you know? So after a particularly terrible beating, Sheila did call the police and Alan was arrested and charged with battery. But I mean, this is the problem with so much that happens in domestic violence situations is they let let him out of jail the next day. Well, he also has a shit ton of money now. Yep. And all the police did for Sheila was give her a family violence card to the county district attorney's office. So is that like, like a punch is, card? Yeah. Like, I don't know how that's supposed to help her. Like, they were like, go to the DA, you know? Wow. That's horrible. Yeah. Not helpful. So this was the final straw. And Sheila ended up putting the girls in her car and she drove to Santa Rosa, California. So while they had been in Hawaii, they had had a nanny named Jonda. And Jonda and Sheila had gotten very, very close. And when they moved back to this, like, you know, the continental states, Jonda had decided not to continue with the family because she was so terrified of Alan and she had witnessed what was going on. And so she told Sheila when she left, like, you need to leave this man. And if you do come to California and I will take care of you. Okay. So that was the first place that Sheila went to. She went to Santa Rosa. But somehow Alan figured out where she was going and he jumped on a plane and then got a rental car and he ended up driving up to Jonda's address at the exact same time that Sheila and the little girls were arriving. So there was, of course, a huge altercation. Apparently, Sheila was holding two-year-old Daryl in her arms and... Alan attacked her and, you know, she fell while she was trying to protect Daryl. And at at that point, Alan got back in his car and this neighbor who had been witnessing it thought that Alan was going to try to run over Sheila and the child. So he tried to stop Alan. Instead, Alan ran him over the good Samaritan. But like he, he was like pushed up onto the hood of the car. He wasn't like completely run over. He was pushed up onto the hood of the car. And then Alan smashed into a gate on Jonda's property. Oh, and this guy was like thrown from the car. And thankfully, Jonda had called the police by now. So he did end up getting arrested 
for assault and battery at this point. And while he was in jail in Santa Rosa, Sheila drove the girls to Oregon to hide out with Carrie and her family. But she was so shaken from everything that had been going on that she got into a car accident on the way. Oh, my God. And everyone, thankfully, was fine. But it was crazy. I mean, Sheila was 23 years old and she had already been through all of this. That's horrifying. With two little children. It's so sad. And Anne Rule said that at this point, even though she was only 23 and she is a a beautiful woman, she looked like she was in her 40s at this point. She was so stressed. The stress had eaten away at her youth, at her life. Like she was skeletal. They said she was 85 pounds at this point. Oh my God. But she did it. I mean, she did it. She never went back to Allen after this incident and she never went back to their home in San Antonio. She just was like, you know what? If he's going to make it a whole thing, he can keep whatever is in that house. I will just take my kids. She decided to go back to San Antonio because she did have a good job. And she got a tiny two-bedroom condo that she knew she could afford on her own salary. Why go back to San Antonio? I know. I I think that she just knew that she had support, at least in that job. And the attorneys at the firm represented her, you know, in the divorce and stuff. So she decided to go back to San Antonio. And and they did say, I mean, Anne Rule said it was because mostly of this job. And she also had a support network there. So though Alan was successful by now and was making a lot of money, he managed to, of course, hide his assets. And Sheila got virtually nothing in the divorce. She did get her freedom, however, when the divorce was finalized on September 22nd, 1988. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, It's just, it's hard. This was a really hard case, though, because the danger was not over. When Alan's previous wives had left him, he had already been pretty much done with them. In both cases, he was already dating somebody new by the time they actually went through with the divorce. Okay. But in Sheila's case, he wasn't finished with Sheila and he vowed to make her pay for leaving him. Oh my God. So Sheila did her best to move on with her life. Uh, She moved into a new apartment complex that was also full of recent divorcees, just like her. And she befriended another young woman named Sue, who was also going through a bitter divorce with an abusive husband. Sue and Sheila also both feared that their exes were sexually abusing their children. Oh my God. Yeah. In Sheila's case, it was three and a half year old Stevie, a daycare provider had noticed some behavioral issues. And she said that when it was like Alan's time with the children, Stevie smelled like sex. Could you imagine? I truly cannot. It's any parent's worst nightmare. I don't understand why she even has to share them with him when he's a fucking basket case abuser. Yeah. Well, I don't think that, you know, she had the resources to launch a very protracted legal battle against a guy who now is making millions of dollars, you know? Ugh, disgusting. So, I mean, now she has something that is a very valid reason to not allow visitation. And they even took Stevie to a psychologist and that child psychologist also believed that sexual abuse was occurring. So, of course, like I said, Sheila was now fighting to have Alan's visitation revoked, but 
it was really hard to prove that there was abuse happening based on a uh, like physical examination. There I was, was going to no, ask if there, if yeah, there was that. no signs, you know, obviously there's so many ways you can sexually abuse a child. That's not going to leave evidence, you know? And at this point, Stevie was three and a half and she was unable or unwilling or, you know, just she's a toddler. She was unable to testify, you know? Yeah. So while Sheila was fighting to save her child, her friend Sue met a wonderful man at their apartment complex and became engaged to be married. While her fiance was recovering from surgery, her ex-husband, who was a dentist, we've had a couple bad dentists. Yeah, Jesse. What does that say about my, dentists? My dad's a dentist. <laughs> I, uh, there is even an ID show that ran for only one season called Deadly Dentists. Stop. I guess they only there had really one is. season worth of content though, so it's not that <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah, there's not that many. <laughs> but I sent it to my dad. He's like, I'm not going to watch this. I was like, look what your brethren do. <laughs> yeah, so this guy was a dentist and essentially he was like, hey, there's a whole bunch of stuff at the house that I've been you know, holding back. I heard you moved on. You're getting married. And I think that's great. Why don't you come and finally get your stuff? And she was like, no, I'm not going to meet you at the house. You know? Yeah. Um, he's like, it's okay. Like, why don't you do it? Like during office hours, you know, my secretary will be there. There'll probably be patients in the office. Like, obviously I'm not going to do anything. Like you'll be totally safe. So she told this to her fiance who was recovering from surgery. So he was like, well, can I go with you anyway? And she's like, no, because it'll just set him off if he sees you with me, you know? Okay. She's like, don't worry, his secretary's going to be there. But when she arrived at the office, she found out that her ex-husband had closed the office for a half day and sent his secretary home. So he had essentially lured her there. Uh, and then he beat her to death. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And went to jail? And went to jail, yes. He was convicted and he was sent to jail for 30 years, which it should have been more. Oh my God. But the crazy thing was that on his list of witnesses and he wasn't called, but on the witness list for the defense no. in this deadly dentist was Alan Blackthorne. No. What the fuck does that mean? It means that they were friends. Yeah. Yeah. And he was going to testify in his defense somehow. I don't know what Alan would have to say. Yeah, like Alan. was a good person, you know? So Sheila was not only devastated to lose her friend in such a horrific way, but of course, this terrified her for her own future. Yeah. I mean, she had been in that car when Alan killed a man and tried to kill another woman she had also watched him run that guy over at John Does in Santa Rosa. So she knew what he was willing to do to perfect strangers. So what was he going to do to the woman that he told everyone he hated more than anything in the world? Yep. Yeah. So she so did her scary. best to have. It's so, so terrifying. And, you know, my heart, I can't even tell you about how bad I feel for people who have children with their abusers and for whatever reasons are forced to be in situations where they're re-traumatized constantly, you know? That should not happen. And she was really doing her best to avoid Alan, um, but he would force interactions by refusing to pay her court-appointed child support. He would not honor custody agreements, like he wouldn't take the girls home when he was supposed to. 
And Sheila was just having the hardest time just making ends meet without any help. And the girls described the lifestyle of their father as living in a mansion. He drove sports cars. When they stayed with him, they would eat out at restaurants every night. And then when they were with Sheila, they were in this tiny little condo sharing a room and eating top ramen every night because that's all Sheila could afford. Yeah. By 1996, Allen had started another multi-million dollar medical device company and was raking in over $15 million a year. What? In 1996 money. Oh my God, Jess. Around this time, he also met a woman who had become his fourth wife, a real piece of work named Maureen. So Maureen had been a sales rep for Hewlett Packard who met Allen through a dating service. She was five years younger than he was, and she had her own money, and she was successful in her own career. She seemed like a match for him in a lot of ways. In fact, later on, not at the beginning of their relationship, but later in their marriage, people said that she was the only woman that ended up controlling Alan. Okay. Apparently, she had figured out a way to dominate him in a way that he had always been looking for, but not realized, like with the choking stuff, with like, you know, hiring sex workers to tie him up and whip him and stuff. Like, it seems like he thought, and he did act like this, like he wanted to be the dominant one, but really a relationship in which the woman was the dominant one worked for him more. Okay. So they said that this marriage of Alan's did last and it lasted because at some point Maureen figured out the key that she had to essentially keep him in line and crack the whip herself. Okay. And people in their neighborhood later on would say that like if he was like a minute late for dinner coming home, she would throw his dinner out on the lawn and lock the door (laughs) and not let him come home. She's a match for him, this woman. She also might be evil. So keep that in your mind too. I mean, if she's a match for him, she's obviously fucking evil. Yeah. And I guess the two were just like really copacetic. Like they would just sit together and chain smoke cigarettes. And I don't know. I just imagine an evil couple because that's who they are. (laughs) So she fell head over heels for him. He's rich as shit at this point, of course. But her family was not convinced. Apparently, Maureen's sister was married to like a bank president who thought that he was full of shit. And Alan had been like bragging about going to Stanford and all these people that he knew and, you know, how successful he was. So the brother-in-law hired a private investigator to look up some of his claims and found out that he was a complete liar and a fraud. And in the very least, he certainly hadn't attended Stanford University. Yeah. So... Alan told Maureen that he had gone to Stanford under a different name. So that's why this PI couldn't find it. And he said, your family is like so terrible that they would even hire somebody. And they clearly like don't trust me. They don't trust you. They're shitty people. And you have to choose between your family and me. Yep. And Maureen chose Alan. Oh, he's so good at his job. So good at taking these women and alienating them from everyone who loves them. Yeah. So one of her friends said he was evil. I don't know how to explain it, but I went to his house once and there was just some kind of karma there that was just evil. According to her friends, Maureen was both obsessed with Alan and frightened by him. Still, her fear didn't stop her from wanting desperately to marry him. It didn't take long for her to discover that sexually, Alan wasn't like other men she had known. She didn't like the things he did, a close friend said. Maureen wasn't into all that kinky stuff, but she could live with it. 
Hmm. Meanwhile, Sheila met the love of her life in August of 1992. Okay. I love that this is happening, but I have a feeling it's not going to end well. So. I mean, it's going to be good for a little while at least. Ah, Jesse. He was a pharmaceutical sales rep named Jamie Bellish, and he totally swept Sheila off her feet. Jamie and Sheila met rather adorably on a Southwest flight from California to Texas, which, you know, some people might not know this, but in Southwest, you basically pick your own seat. It's kind of like you have a, a boarding group and then you don't have assigned seats. So he like saw her and she's adorable. And so he sat next to her. And so by cute. the time they got off the flight, it was like already Dunsville, you know? Cute. That's so cute. When I was like a teenager, I always wanted to meet someone on a plane. I used oh to my like God. check out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Planes and bookstores. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because they either have love for books or travel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So yeah, Jamie was exactly what Sheila was looking for after her abusive marriage. Jamie was just really solid. He had been raised in a warm and loving upper middle class family. He had four brothers and sisters. He was a former military man and he was just really strong, solid, mature and emotionally healthy. Physically, Ann Rule suggested that he looked like an Irish cop. Like he's like <laughs> a big white guy. He was 6'1 and 240 pounds. And I think also like being this like big guy and, you know, a former military man probably also made her feel physically safe, you know? Oh my God. Are you kidding? Of course. Very early on in their courtship, Sheila told Jamie about the hell that she had gone through in her previous marriage. And Jamie felt very protective towards Sheila. And he was just really also impressed with her as a person to be able to have the strength and resilience to live through that and start over and be strong enough for your children to, you know, get out at any cost. Yeah, so, was he cool with the kids? Oh, he was He was wonderful with the children, at least at first. So it turns out that maybe his military background and some other things, he was very, very strict, which the girls didn't love. But in the beginning, it was a very good match and he was very excited to be a father figure to them. The only drawback in the situation was that Jamie did come from a large family and he was hoping someday to have his own biological children. But Sheila had actually gotten her tubes tied after Daryl because she was so afraid of having more children oh, with Alan. Oh my God, did he know? I don't know if Alan knew, but she did tell Jamie very early on because when you know they were getting to know her kids... He was like, I love kids. I want to have a pile more, you know? And she was like, okay, I got to tell you something. But he told her he loved her and he would rather have her and the girls than any hypothetical Stop. future children. Yeah, so they Aww. were married and they were, you know, really happy. But of course, when Alan discovered that Sheila was in a happy relationship and engaged, he did everything in his power to thwart her joy. He even purposely served her with papers, suing to change child visitation at their rehearsal dinner. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I'm sure he was trying to time it for their actual wedding and just got it the day before. Yeah, you fucking loser. Get your timing Despite right. his best efforts, he could not dampen Jamie and Sheila's love. The couple had actually eloped privately first so that yes. they could live together. Yes. Yes. The way we did it. Get eloped. Amazing. Especially during these COVID era times. If you want to marry your person, marry your person. You can have a party later. Do Just it. Marry him. Yeah. 
So yeah, they had actually like eloped in their living room because their priest was telling them that they shouldn't live in sin. And they were like, fine, marry us right now. And then we'll have our wedding later. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. So they did both of those and they had their official wedding on June 26th, 1993. Unfortunately, because of Alan's machinations, Sheila was in court two days later instead of on her honeymoon. So as Stevie got older, she acknowledged the sexual abuse and was actually willing to testify about it. But of course, she really didn't want to. It would be a thing that if she was forced to, she would. But really, she was like, Mom, I just don't want to have to spend time with him. Okay. And Alan was trying to force visitation or he was threatening to file for sole custody. And so whenever he did this, whenever he tried to do some legal maneuvers, Sheila would always bring out her ace in the hole, which was the sexual abuse. Like, if you make this a whole thing, then I'm going to tell the court what you did and Stevie's going to testify. Okay. And so he would always end up backing down from these types of fights. Okay. Because by now he was a very wealthy and well-known businessman in San Antonio. So he didn't want to risk the hit to his reputation. Oh my gosh. I know. How horrible would that be? Because that's all he cares about anyway, his money and his reputation. Yep. So Sheila was loath to get involved in Alan's life in general, but when her daughters told her that Alan was planning to marry Maureen, she felt a responsibility to warn her because Sheila always wished that Alan's ex-wives had warned her, you know? Yeah. So Maureen did agree to meet Sheila at a restaurant, but she was 100% disinterested in anything Sheila was trying to say and basically told Sheila to fuck off, you know? Carrie said that Sheila only sighed over the phone to her and said, well, I tried, you know, my conscience is clean. I did my best, you know. Happy times were ahead for Sheila and Jamie. So they had decided to try IVF to see if it was possible that Sheila could get pregnant with Jamie's babies. Okay. And they got pregnant on their very first IVF attempt. Shut up. Ugh, which is so rare. And amazing. And at their first ultrasound, they realized what a home run that IVF attempt had actually been. Sheila was pregnant with not one, not two, not three, but four babies. You've got to be fucking kidding me. How old is she? At this point, she has to be like 30, 30 at this point, maybe. No way. Yeah. She's like late 20s, early 30s, I think. Oh my God. I cannot even imagine. Yeah. And so even the doctors were like, okay, you know, with quads, it's very rare that you can bring all of them into the world alive. And they recommended that they, you know, medically abort two of the babies. And Sheila was not having it. She was like, absolutely fucking not. God gave me these four babies. I'm having these fucking four babies. It's going to happen. And she was right. On December 5th, 1995, uh she delivered four tiny but perfectly healthy babies who were two months premature. So they were all like- not even. I like have no words. It was three boys and one girl. And I guess the girl was like three pounds even 
And the boys were like kind of closer to four, but they were tiny and they had to spend obviously a lot of time in the NICU, which is what your mom does. Yep. And they all survived and thrived. Wow. That is remarkable. It's unbelievable. So the baby's names were Frankie for Sheila's father, Joey for Jamie's father, Timmy for St. Timothy, and little Courtney. Okay. I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, like back then, this is pre-Octomom. So having quads was crazy. She became totally famous as the quad mom. And Jamie and Sheila ended up like all over local media, but they even went on the Maury Povich show with the babies. Stop. Yeah. (laughs) And now as happy as a time for Sheila that this was, it was a very rough transitional time for Daryl and Stevie who were pre I could imagine. I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just like, first of all, they were raised in this, toxic environment you know they had been through it as young girls obviously Stevie was sexually abused Uh, later on it'll come out that they were also like physically abused when they were in Alan's care as well and they had just gone through it and then they you know have this new father figure who is totally different from their father And now they have these babies. Their mom is like famous for having these four babies. They're also just preteens, which is just a really rough time in life anyway, you know? So the girls started acting out. They were like sneaking out. They were getting into trouble. And apparently in Jamie and Sheila's upbringing, an appropriate way to discipline your children is through corporal punishment. Okay. So they were spanking the girls who were preteens at this point. Who also have been actually physically abused. Who have been physically abused. Yeah. So this is no bueno. So, of course, now they are really angry and they're telling Alan that their mother and Jamie are abusing them because they're spanking them, you know. And this was just what Alan had been waiting for. And so at this point, the Bellishes had recently moved into their dream home and they had already had some small skirmishes with their next door neighbor. And it was about like typical neighbor stuff. Like basically the Bellishes had dogs and they built a dog run and this neighbor was like, it's on my property. Like you screwed up the property line and they didn't like hearing the dogs and they claimed that they weren't taking care of their dogs. And then to retaliate, the neighbor got these like floodlights that went right into the bedrooms of the babies and Uh, like Jamie and Sheila. So there's all this going on and it intensified when the neighbor got involved with the girls and the girls started going over to the neighbor's house and being like, my mom hit me, my mom spanked me. And she started calling Alan and the neighbor befriended Alan and essentially told Alan that she would spy on the house for him. Yep. And this was all because Alan was positioning himself as this amazing father who, even though he was a multimillionaire, took the time to care about his daughters and wanted to know how they were being raised and, you know, was so concerned about them. Not that he wanted revenge and material against his ex-wife, you know? So I can kind of see it, like, from both sides that this neighbor who is spying on them thinks that she's in the right, you know? He also, of course, told Daryl especially. I mean, Stevie was already like, I'm not fucking with my dad. 
Like, I'm not dealing with him, you know? But Daryl still wanted to be in her dad's life. And so he especially was like, Daryl, if your mom ever mistreats you, even if you just get into a little fight, go to the neighbor's house. She'll call me and we can like call the police or whatever, you know? So Alan had enough time now to concoct Machiavellian-like schemes against his ex-wife and her new husband because his latest company had made him worth a reported $50 million. Oh my God. He and Maureen had married and they moved into a 9,000 square foot mansion known as the Pink Palace. This place is gigantic. And they had welcomed their first child, a son named Brandon. At this time, um, Maureen was also expecting their second child who would also be a son. So Alan had stepped back from an active role in the company and he spent most of his days golfing and gambling at this point. Though he was still stiffing Sheila for child support, he managed to spend an exorbitant amount of money betting on each golf hole. The person he gave the most money to was a former amateur golf champion and part-time bookie named Danny Rocha. One day, Alan forked over an astonishing $30,000 to Danny in golf losings. (laughs) Casual. Casual. I mean, apparently just based on his winnings from Alan, Danny was able to move his family of five from living in his aunt's cramped home into a big brick house in an upscale neighborhood just because of Alan. So it would be an understatement to say that Danny was very loyal to Alan and, of course, dependent upon him. In the summer of 1997, Sheila and Alan were back in court arguing about the girls again. Alan wanted Sheila to force Stevie to see him and Sheila wanted Alan to actually pay child support. As always, the threat of Alan being revealed as a child molester hung over his head. Eventually, Alan and Maureen decided that the girls were more trouble than they were worth and Alan officially gave up his parental rights to Stevie and Daryl. Oh my God. I mean, this was a move that surprised everyone that he would relinquish this chain to his children, but also to getting back at Sheila, you know? Yeah, but if it's just causing more issues and attention, you know? Which it did. So, you know, Sheila and Jamie were elated because Jamie could officially adopt the girls now and also they could move to Florida. Jamie was up for a promotion and he was able to transfer to Florida, which they wouldn't have been able to do before because obviously they would have had to get permission from the other parent as far as keeping a visitation schedule, you know? Okay. So now that he gave up his rights, Jamie was like taking the promotion. He was flying to Florida to figure out where they were going to live. They were building a house and he had found a rental for them to move into. This seemed like all good news, but the girls, of course found out that their father had disowned them and wanted nothing to do with them. And they also found out that they were going to be moved to Florida, a state where they didn't know anyone and away from all of their friends and everything. So they were really pissed off about this at the beginning. And of course, really hurt. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of issues you have with your parent to have them officially legally say, I have no right to you and I'm not your father anymore is painful. Yeah. So yeah, they were having a really, really, really hard time of it. And while Jamie was gone, apparently Daryl and 
Sheila got into some really bad altercation about something that Daryl was doing or she wasn't supposed to be doing. And they had had words. And Daryl claimed that Sheila beat her with a belt. Oh, my God. And now Sheila would claim that she just spanked her with her hand. Whatever had happened, she was the child was hit. Yeah. So I think Daryl was like 12 years old around this time. And she, of course, went to the neighbors and she was hysterical. The neighbor said that she had welts on her body and the neighbor called the police. So the police came and Sheila was arrested under suspicion of child abuse. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yep. When she was booked, it became huge news because it was like the famous quad mom who everybody had seen on TV, like and adored. glowing, adored, yeah. was arrested on suspicion of child abuse. Like everybody hates, I mean, everyone loves to hate a hypocrite, you know? Yeah. So basically, Alan was relishing in this new attention. Yeah. Yep. Sheila was allowed. They did an investigation and they decided that she would have to come back for a court date. But the social workers essentially said that they just needed family counseling and that they were willing to relinquish Daryl back into Sheila and Jamie's care. Uh, but this was just a very hard transitory time for the family because actually Jamie was already in Florida. And Sheila, during this time, was supposed to be quietly packing up the house and, like, essentially leaving in the middle of the night so Alan didn't know where they were moving to uh, and now all of this stuff was going on. Yeah. So she shared the situation with the social workers and they basically were like, you know, this is a lot. This is a lot for Daryl, too, who's having a very hard time with this, but she's not going to go to her father's because her father has given up his parental rights, you know? So they decided that she was going to remain in essentially like a foster group home in Texas for just a little while. Well, Sheila took the quads and Stevie to Florida, got them settled in the rental house. And then Sheila came back to get Daryl and a social worker flew on the plane with them from Texas to Florida and everyone decided that it would be best if Daryl moved in very briefly to a YWCA, which if you guys know like what a YMCA is, it was originally founded to be like a home uh, for young women and young man, men to stay in that was a safe and supervised place, you yep. know? Yep. And so essentially she was moving into this home in Sarasota, Florida, where her family was now living. And uh, social workers in Florida were going to work with Daryl and the family to determine when it was the best time for her to rejoin the family emotionally. So this is all what's going on. Whew. There's a lot of stress at this point in the family. And Sheila also really, really, really didn't want Alan to know where they were going because he had made a lot of threats on Sheila's life at this point. So they didn't tell anyone what their address was. They only gave people a mailboxes, et cetera, number. So like essentially like a P.O. box. Yeah. So nobody knew their address from their old life and nobody could, you know, tell Alan where they were. Yeah. So at this point they move and they're getting settled in and there's still this problem with Daryl. However, after a couple months... She's starting to feel like it's going to be okay. You know, Alan, they haven't heard from Alan. He hasn't been able to find them, it seems like. So for the first time in a very, very long time, 
Sheila was just getting into a routine with her quads who are now almost two years old. Stevie was in school. She was doing well. You know, Daryl was going to rejoin the family soon. She was like, I think it's going to be, everything's going to be okay, you know? So early on the morning of November 7th, 1997, Jamie left the rental house on Mark Ridge Street to begin a full day of calling on doctors in the Fort Myers and Naples, Florida areas. Sheila dropped Stevie off at school and then picked up McDonald's breakfast for the quads. She fed the babies and then took them for a swim. They were 23 months old at this point, so just shy of two years. Okay. There was an indoor pool in what they called the Florida room of the house, and part of Sheila's routine was to strip the babies naked, put their life vests on, and then let them kind of like tire themselves out before their nap. Okay. Well, November 7th was no different, and Sheila splashed with the quads and cuddled them. Sheila felt safe and happy. She had her miracle babies, and she was, you know, miles and miles away from her past at this point. How do you even, how do you even manage to do that with four kids? I have no how, idea. How do you wrangle? I can't wrangle my 11-month-old. I can barely bathe my two children without worrying that the older one's going to drown the little one, you know? I just don't, I don't understand. I, everyone out there, I know you all do it better than me because I just, I don't (laughs) understand. I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm not good at trying to keep my 11 month old alive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are because you're succeeding. So you are good at it. You just, just, it's hard. It's really hard to keep our kids alive because they're like little suicide machines. They just want to kill themselves constantly. I don't understand. Like the thought of bobbing around with four babies and putting them in life jackets before they fall into the pool literally gives me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, this was something she did every day. She was now a stay at home mom of these four kids. And she was actually like doing a great job. But what she didn't know was that a little while earlier, a lawn care worker named Jake Mast had noticed a strange young man wearing a camouflage uniform and combat boots basically park his car and go around this corner. So he watched this and Jake knew everybody in this gated community. And he always like waved at everybody. And this guy had not waved back. He had looked kind of suspicious. So after he parked his car and went down the street, Jake like surreptitiously got a little closer and he memorized the license plate number. Wow. So the number was YBR62G. And to remember, Jake even created a mnemonic clue. He said, yes, Bob runs 62 girls to remember the driver's license number. Wow. So he said like somewhere after like an hour, an hour and a half, he wasn't quite sure. He heard a loud noise and looked up to see that same white car that he had felt was sketchy basically burn rubber and like speed away out of this neighborhood. So he's like, something is not right there. Yeah. So six hours later, after Jake had witnessed this man leaving, 13-year-old Stevie raced home, excited to share news with her mom because the voice she liked at school liked her too. Oh my God, so cute. Yeah. So she was really excited because I guess she'd been talking about this boy to her mom. So she burst through the unlocked front door 
and immediately could tell that something was very, very wrong. The quads were huddled together in the hall, wearing nothing but their life vests and crying. Okay. So Stevie knew for sure that her mother would have never let the babies cry. Like she just, she didn't even let them cry for like 10 minutes, let alone like they seemed like they'd been crying for a very long time. They were like hoarse, you know? And she never let them near the pool or in their life vest, like unattended ever. So she's like, okay, something is really, really, really wrong here. So she started to try to call for Sheila and she saw a strange shape lying on the ground, basically between the utility room and the kitchen. And the utility room, which was like a laundry room, was right off the kitchen. So drawing closer, she realized that the shape on the ground was her mother. In shock, Stevie realized there was blood everywhere and her mother was dead. So Stevie called 911 and they played the tape on the real show, Sex, Lies, and Murder. And it's just heartbreaking. I mean, this is a 13-year-old child. Yeah, no, I can't. Who's, you know, there's four little toddler babies that are hysterical. Her mother is brutally murdered and covered with blood. It's it's just a heartbreaking call. And so the police arrived within minutes and they found a shell-shocked teenager trying to comfort her toddler siblings. Yeah. They found that Sheila had a massive knife wound to her neck as well as defensive wounds to her hands and arms. Based on the coagulated blood and the rigor mortis that was beginning to settle in, they could tell that Sheila had been dead for hours. Or babies. The babies had been in the house when their mother was brutally murdered and then for hours afterwards. Based on Sheila's body position and the fact that the kitchen phone was off the hook, they surmised that she had tried to make it to call 911 before collapsing. According to Ann Rule's book, the fire department crew checked the toddlers and found that they had dried blood on their skin, but since they had no wounds or scratches, the blood had apparently come from their mother. There was evidence that they had huddled next to her for some of the six hours they had waited alone in the house for someone to find Jesus. them. Frankie had blood inside his life vest where it had dripped or splashed from some height down onto his chest. The only logical conclusion was that he had clung to his mother's leg while she was still upright and moving across the kitchen to the phone. With her last breath of life and her blood rapidly draining from her body, Sheila had managed to get the phone off the hook, but then she collapsed and fell backward before she could make the rotary dial connect with 911. Ugh. It's just, I'm so immensely glad that we live in a time where we have smart devices where you can even, like, you know, shout, like, hey, Alexa, call 911, you know? Yeah. Because they did say that potentially her life maybe could have been saved if they had managed to get there in record speed. But after that many hours, it was impossible. Yeah. Both Stevie and Jamie Bellish told police that Alan Blackthorne was absolutely the man responsible for Sheila's murder, though they both believed that he certainly had hired somebody to do the dirty work. Really? Mm-hmm. It was the first, it, it, for Stevie, it was the first thing when they, even before they knew exactly how Sheila had died, when they walked in, they were like, is there anyone who'd want your mother hurt? And she was like, it was my father. 
In the autopsy, they discovered that Sheila had been also shot in the face, which they didn't realize at first, and she had been attacked with a knife. Somebody had clearly wanted to make sure that she was absolutely and truly dead. A motive was very unclear at the scene. It was not a burglary gone wrong because nothing had been taken from the house and Sheila was still wearing a solid gold bracelet. No sperm or other indication of sexual assault was present either. So it did appear to be a targeted attack on Sheila, though if it was a hit, it certainly hadn't been done by a professional because it was just a messy, messy, terrible murder scene. The investigators quickly ruled Jamie out. He had been seen by several doctors and receptionists throughout his sales calls that day. All of his whereabouts could be totally alibied. Okay. Alan was contacted and said that he had actually already heard about the murder from the news because she was still famous in the San Antonio area for having the quads. So her death had been actually big news. He also had an ironclad alibi. He had been on a San Antonio golf course all day with plenty of witnesses. So a break in the case occurred when good old Jake heard the news and called the police to report the suspicious young man and his license plate. Uh, That's what I'm talking about. It's incredible. It is incredible that he managed to get that number because there were several other neighbors that did notice him and did notice his car and said, that's weird. They don't belong in this neighborhood. Like, remember where I live? You, we would know on that like dead end street. Like if somebody was there that didn't normally go there. Yep. And that's like what it was like in this neighborhood. But none of them, except for this guy, Jake had gotten the license plate number. So crazy. Now he hadn't noticed that it was in out of state license plate. So they first tried to run the number based in Florida and it wasn't coming up with anything. And then they put two and two together about Alan Blackthorne being in Texas. And they were like, okay, let's run the number in Texas. And of course they got a hit. Stop. Mm -hmm. The white eclipse was registered to a 60 something year old woman named Maria del Toro in La Prior, Texas. So they called Maria to see if her car had been stolen. And she said she wouldn't know because she had actually bought the car for her 20-year-old grandson, Jose Luis del Toro, who went by Joey. So now they have a suspect for the shooter and they connected with the Texas Rangers to see if the kid had gone back to Texas and try to track him down. Meanwhile, an employee of Allen's came forward with some information. A sales rep for Allen's company's Florida branch told the police that Alan had been hounding her to track down his ex-wife and send him her new address. So he told this employee that Sheila had stolen his kids and that he needed the address so that he could serve her with legal papers, which of course was a lie because he had no legal right to these children. And she was very uncomfortable with this. Her gut instinct was like, I don't want to do this. This isn't part of my job. So she kept saying no to him. And he kept coming back with sob stories about why she needed to do this for him to keep the children safe. So she finally ended up tearing out the PI section of the yellow pages and sending it to him. And was like, look, if you want to find your ex-wife, go through a professional. I'm not doing it for you. Good for her. Yep. So she did that. And so she called the police after she found out that Sheila Bellish, who had been married to her boss, had been brutally murdered. She's like, I think that you guys need this information. He was trying to track her down. You should contact some PI agencies around here to see if he succeeded in finding out her address. 
Also, by now, they had informed Daryl that her mother was murdered because, remember, Daryl was in the YWCA. And so they waited until she could be with her family to tell her the news. And when they did tell her the news, she exploded into tears. And the tears were not just grief. They were also guilt because when she had been lonely and sad and angry and frustrated that she was in the YWCA while her whole family was together and, you know, her dad had disowned her and all this stuff, she ended up calling Alan on this like special 800 number he had given her to always contact him that her mother couldn't trace. And she had fed him all of this information. Oh my God. So he had told her, I'm so sorry that you're sad and I want to be with you and it doesn't matter that I've given up my legal rights. I'm going to come visit you for Christmas. And that's all Daryl wanted. And he's like, but baby, I can't come visit you if I don't know where you live. And by Christmas, you'll be back living at your mom's. So what's your mom's address? And Daryl actually didn't know the house number because she'd only been there a couple of times and she'd been driven there, you know? So she told him what street it was on and she explained to him how he could find it by milestone, like, like mark milestones, marker stones, whatever. Like she was like, there's an ice cream shop across the street, you know? So now she just felt absolutely terrible that she may have contributed to her mother's murder. This poor kid. Also, her father never called her again, ever. Of course not. After he got the street name that Sheila lived on. So the Texas Rangers did manage to track down some of Joey Del Toro's girlfriends. And oh boy, this guy had a few. He was quite a little playboy. (laughs) Joey had been a high school football star who was now working at a weight loss spa in Corpus Christi, Texas. He had been arrested already previously for drug-related charges. It looked like he had been a very bit player in some sort of drug organization. And he had sold some cocaine and marijuana. He also had a cocaine addiction, I think, at this point. So he was in a like a prison release work program where he was allowed to be out of prison Monday through Friday to work. And then he was supposed to report back to the prison on the weekends. Okay. But the weekend, like right around when Sheila was killed, he had called out. He had said he could not come to the prison because of a family emergency. And he had actually like made one of his girlfriends call. And she said to the police that he had come to her and he had been really shaken up about something. He'd been involved in something and he'd gotten in over his head. He said he had hurt a woman whose ex-husband wanted her dead or hurt. And he had dropped off this bag and clothes at her home. And she was actually in school for criminal justice. So she told the authorities that even though he had later called her and asked her to destroy the bag and the clothes, she had not. And she had saved them for him. For I mean, for the police. So they are, you know, getting somewhere and they are interrogating the girlfriends. There was a couple of them about who was this guy? Did they know his name? Did they know how he had gotten in touch with Joey? Because there was no connection whatsoever with this 20 year old and with Alan Blackthorne. Yep. And so one of the girls said that she believed the person who connected them was Joey's cousin, Sammy Gonzalez. 
So they look up Sammy and Sammy works at a San Antonio golf course. One that Alan plays at. Okay. So they're like, okay, we're getting closer to how this is potentially leaked. So the Rangers collected the evidence from the girlfriend and she also showed them where Joey's car was. So it was still parked near her house, apparently. And the car ended up being a treasure trove of evidence. So they did find the camouflage clothing and combat boots that Jake Mast had witnessed the assailant wearing. And in the car, they also found a Colt government model 45 caliber automatic handgun in a holster. They found ammunition, like the kind that was found at the scene. They found a crumpled white piece of paper with scribbled directions to the house, to Sheila's house on Mark Ridge Road. They found a Rand McNally interstate regional map folded open at Florida. They found a shoebox from the sports authority that had once held a pair of black Magnum boots. They also found a receipt from the sports authority listing the purchase of pants, camouflage mask, a top, a camouflage t-shirt, and high-tech boots the day before the murder. Oh, God. And they found a motel room entry card and a receipt from the Hampton Inn the night before the murder with one night's lodging for Jose del Toro. (laughs) He had used his real name and used his driver's license to check into this hotel. And they also found a camouflage ski mask made of knitted khaki and orange material. So beyond that, they found a transfer blood stain on the driver's seat. And it was large enough to be DNA tested and was also proven to be Sheila's blood. Oh, my God. I mean, this guy is just done. He's the killer. Done. But unfortunately, while they had been investigating this, I guess Joey had some girlfriends in Mexico as well, just over the border. So now he's on the lam in Mexico. So while the Rangers were working with the Mexican authorities to locate Joey and extradite him, they were also working with the Florida detectives to connect the dots between Joey and Alan. Yeah. So right now they had, yeah, Sammy Gonzalez, who had no direct connection to Alan as far as like, phone records, you know, like they knew that like he worked at a golf club that Alan went to, but there was no hard evidence that they had ever communicated, which obviously they needed. So they hunted Sammy down and they began to interrogate him. Meanwhile, the Bellish family (sighs) held Sheila's funeral and this was just a really sad situation. Of course, the quads have no idea really what's going on. They've been traumatized and Stevie's been traumatized as well. Daryl was completely guilt ridden and Jamie was so angry in his grief and, you know, clueless as to how he was going to go forward with these four little babies and his stepdaughters that he couldn't even look at Daryl. Unfortunately, at this time, he did hold her partially responsible for communicating with Alan, which is something they had begged her not to do, you know? So he, in his anger, told Carrie, who of course was at the funeral, that he was not going to take Daryl with him when he moved. And Carrie was like, you can't do that to a 12-year-old girl who's lost her entire family. You can't just also abandon her. And he's like, well, tough shit. 
And Carrie's like, well, fuck that. I'm adopting her. Of so, course. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie adopted Daryl and took her back to the Pacific Northwest where Daryl was raised with Carrie's four babies with her husband, Rick. And Jamie moved to New Jersey where he raised the four kids and Stevie in a large lakeside home that had been owned by his parents. And it, it seems like his mother especially helped out a lot with the kids. Okay. So back in Texas, Sammy Gonzalez finally broke and admitted that the person who paid him to find a killer for Sheila Bellish was none other than Danny Rocha, Alan Blackthorne's best golf buddy. That's the connection. Wow. Yep. So he explained that Alan told Danny that Sheila was abusing his children and that she needed to be taught a lesson. At first, Danny told Sammy that Alan just wanted her beat up badly, but eventually the discussion turned to murder. Now, Sammy had refused the job. Like originally, Danny wanted Sammy to do it, but he wasn't going to lay a hand on anyone. So he pulled in his cousin, Joey, with the promise of $4,000 to do the deed. So what was Danny supposed to be getting? Well, Alan had promised him a 25% stake in a multi-million dollar golf course that he was opening. Oh my God. When interrogated, Danny admitted that Alan had asked for Sheila to get beat up and had given him an address and two photos of Sheila, which he then passed on to Sammy, who gave it to Joey. Danny maintained that he just believed that the plan was for Sheila to get hurt, but not killed. Well, Sammy said that Danny absolutely 100% knew that the idea was to murder her. Yeah, I feel like it, that only works if it's Alan actually doing the hurting. You know what I mean? You don't send some rando to go hurt someone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this also isn't like they're still trying to get a gambling debt out of her or something. No. You know, they're not trying to teach her a lesson. So they're obviously getting closer to Alan, who by now had lawyered up to the teeth. So they could not still arrest Alan, but they did arrest Danny and they arrested Sammy and they got to doing some digging on Alan and they found out about the biker that he had killed, about the abuse of his ex-wives. They even found an old mistress like from, it sounds like before Sheila, who had had another of Alan's children, but had left him when he was abusive. and. For her to never acknowledge Alan as the dad, he like secretly sent her some money that wasn't like above board, apparently. So yeah, they, they found all of this dirt out about him. Several friends and employees of Alan's also reported that he repeatedly spoke about how he wanted Sheila dead and how much he hated her. And they also found a recording of him trying to talk a bail bondsman company into giving him Sheila's new address in Florida. Wow. Yeah, and the bail bonds company, I guess, recorded all conversations because they're dealing with so many legal matters. So they had him on tape, like trying to wheedle an address out of them and like lying all over the tape oh about God. how he was a concerned father. So Joey was actually tracked down in Mexico where he was taken into custody until Mexico and the United States could work out an extradition agreement. In the meantime, they hammered out a plea deal for Sammy Gonzalez. In exchange for 19 years in prison, Sammy would testify against Danny and Joey and Alan if they were able to indict him eventually. So this is what Sammy said, how everything went down. 
He said that he was first approached by Daniel Rocha in the latter part of July of 1997 in reference to Rocha wanting Gonzalez to do him a favor by beating up a woman. In exchange, the person who wanted this woman beaten up would be willing to pay $20,000. At this first contact with Sammy, Rocha would not identify the person wanting to contract the beating, but mentioned that the person was the ex-husband of the target. The reason given to Sammy was that the woman was physically abusing his daughter. So Sammy admitted that he told Danny that he would think about his proposal and let him know later. A week or so later, Danny and Sammy did meet again, and Sammy told Danny that he couldn't do it. So Danny then asked him to find somebody who could do it. Sammy said he didn't know if he could, but Danny kept pressuring him, so he finally said that he might have a cousin who would be able to do it. So Danny told Sammy that if he liked, he could keep $15,000 and give his cousin only five. So Sammy was going to get 15 grand in the deal. He promised Sammy that he would get the victim's address and Sammy asked that he also get photographs of her. Sammy said that Danny gave him an address and two pictures of the victim to be a few days later. This time, he also named the man who wanted his ex-wife beaten. It was Alan Blackthorne. Danny put the heat on a little, telling Sammy that Alan had found someone else who would do it for $5,000, but if it didn't work out and his ex-wife continued to beat his daughter, he'd be ordering another attack and that would mean another $5,000. He suggested that Sammy could keep $1,000 for himself and only give his cousin $4,000 at this point. So I'm getting like really confused with what Sammy actually thought he was going to get here. To prove he was serious, Danny gave Sammy $4,000 in $100 bills. He gave it to me to hold, Sammy said. A few days later, Danny called him and told him that they had to carry out the beating very soon because the target was getting ready to move to Florida. So Sheila was totally right to be trying to leave in the middle of the night. Her life really was, you know, on the line here. So while they were moving, I guess that these guys were like driving by the address and they were like looking in the windows and they were trying to catch her. So Sammy thought that when Sheila moved, she successfully moved, that the whole thing was going to get called off. But Danny called him back and said that the deal was back on. He said that Alan Blackthorne was going to hire a private investigator to find Sheila's address in Florida. Over the next few weeks, Danny provided Sammy with videos of the news broadcast about Sheila's arrest. So they, they were trying to like prove to Sammy that she was a child abuser. On November 4th, three days before Sheila died, Sammy met with Danny and Joey at the Pan American Golf Association Club to discuss the plan. On that Tuesday night, Danny gave Joey $500 and $100 bills for expenses on his Florida trip, along with an address for Sheila. He mentioned the incentive pay of 10 grand if Alan got his daughter back, and Joey said that it might be easier if he just went ahead and shot the victim, although, you know, that might kill her. Oh, if my she God. dies she dies. That was the consensus among the plotters. The beating had escalated into something far worse. According to Sammy, Danny said, it's up to you how you do it. If she dies, it probably would be the easiest way for you to get your money. So Sammy was sentenced to 19 years on February 12th, 1998. And of course, the detectives and the DA really wanted to nail Alan, which they needed Danny for. So they tried to offer Danny the same deal that they gave Sammy, 19 years, which is a hell of a lot better than the life sentence you get if you're convicted of solicitation of murder. Oh my God. But Danny didn't want to take the deal. He thought that they would eventually have to play ball with him in order to get Alan, because he was so key to the case, that he continued to lobby for almost no time at all. Eventually, the authorities were like, well, fine, screw it. Like, have it your way. Good luck at trial, buddy, you know? 
And that was a huge mistake on Danny's part. I mean, this was not hustling a shitty golfer like Alan Blackthorne. You are dealing with a real judge and jury here, buddy. So he went on trial in January of 1999, and his defense was that he had never intended for Sheila to die. They admitted that he had been part of a plot to get her beaten up, but they said that he thought they were teaching an abusive mother a lesson, and he never knew that there there was going to be a murder at all. Okay. The prosecution's contention was, of course, that had it not been for Danny Roach's involvement, six children would have their mother as he was the one who arranged everything and found the killer. Yep. So this was a poor gamble for Danny. And after only five hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit aggravated battery. During sentencing, the judge said, Who made you God? Who gave you the right to plan to inflict pain on another human life, let alone take another's life? You did both because you wanted to play God, because you wanted a piece of a golf course. Now your life too is over the way you dreamed it or lived it or knew it. It cannot be redeemed. But is there redemption for you? Perhaps if you consciously remember the beautiful life you've taken and the other lives you've ruined. She then meted out Danny's punishment, life in prison without parole and 13.3 years for conspiracy to commit aggravated battery. He was still charged with solicitation to commit capital murder in Bear County, Texas. Like Sheila's children, Danny Rocha's three little boys would grow up without a parent. He would have his life, but it would be a life in prison more than a thousand miles away from them and his wife. Ugh, stupid. So, so senseless. So the jurors had no problem convicting Danny. Their only question was why hadn't Alan Blackthorne been arrested? Which. It's a very good question. And it finally happened on January 4th of 2000. That's some Y2K right there. January 4th, 2000. Yep. After his arrest, the police searched his mansion and found a paper with Sheila's address on it, as well as evidence that the pictures of Sheila had come from Alan's address. So if you are a young listener, you will not recall the days in which you had to take your film from a camera, bring it to a CVS or a Walgreens, And have somebody develop it for you. And then they would hand you back your pictures in an envelope. But they also included the negatives in these envelopes so that you could reprint anything that you wanted. And they found one of these envelopes and they had the negatives. And in the envelope, there was all of the pictures except for two indicated by the negatives. And those two were the exact same ones that the killer had. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's. (laughs) Pretty clear that he gave the killers those photos from his home. They also found a whole pile of dildos in various shapes, colors, and sizes, and a lot of ladies' wigs and lingerie in a size large in Alan's closet. But, you know, that's not criminal to each their own. Yeah, for sure. But just just thought I'd mention it. (laughs) His closet was riddled with dildos. It was riddled with dildos. It was described as a large suitcase full of dildos. (laughs) So Alan's trial was set for June 12th, 2000, while Mexico and the U.S. had finally worked out a deal for Joey. Mexico would extradite Joey to Florida, where he would plead guilty to murder only if the death penalty was taken off the table. 
which was a shame because Florida really likes killing people. So they were bummed about that. But Joey agreed that he would take a deal where he would receive life in prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, he is 20 years old and he is going to spend the vast, vast, vast majority of his life in prison for $4,000. Yeah. What about Alan? (laughs) What about Alan? Where is this motherfucker? So while they were working out transportation for Joey, Alan went on trial in Bear County, Texas, which, by the way, I found out it it looks like Bexar County, but it's pronounced Bear County because it was always called Bear County. But the original sign in like the Old West had like an X mark on the sign. And so when they started recording the name of the county, somebody took it off the sign and called it Bexar County. Oh, my God. Hilarious. Uh, all the ways you can screw a podcaster up around here. Thank God Anne Rule mentioned in her book that it was pronounced Bear County or I would be over here Bexarin all over the place. <laughs> so first assistant U.S. attorney John Murphy detailed how evidence would prove that Alan Blackthorne arranged the murder of his ex-wife Sheila out of revenge. Alan wasn't a man who liked to lose and Sheila had escaped the marriage, won custody of his children, had started a new happy life and even managed to get him to relinquish all claim to their daughters. Alan had been beat by Sheila and he had become obsessed with regaining power and control over the woman who had gotten away. He wanted revenge. Sheila needed to be punished. She needed to die. Alan's phalanx of attorneys, he had like seven attorneys, argued that Danny had organized the entire murder plot completely of his own volition. Huh. They said it was a plan to extort Alan, the multimillionaire. Basically, he was going to set up this whole plot and be like, hey, I murdered your wife, so you have to give me money. Both Stevie and Daryl testified against their father about witnessing his cruelty and abuse to their mother, as well as the abuse he had inflicted on them. Daryl heartbreakingly admitted that she had told her father the street name where her mother lived in the hopes that he would visit her for Christmas. On the stand, like I said, she admitted that after she gave Alan Sheila's street name, he never contacted her ever again or responded to any of her messages. It was clear that Alan had gotten what he wanted out of his daughter and he had no use for her any longer. They also made it clear during this testimony that he never reached out to his children whatsoever after finding out that their mother had been murdered, which an innocent person would do. They would say, oh my God, my poor child, you know? And he had never sent them a Christmas card. He had never sent them a birthday card. He was a multi-multi-millionaire and had never sent them any money to help them. Nothing. So Danny testified against Alan and he did get in some good cracks about how shitty Alan was at golf and how he occasionally let the poor guy win to keep the gravy train going. And Anne Rule said that when Danny was saying these comments about how he was like a shitty golfer and not a good person, but like he gave him money because he was such a bad golfer, that was the only time in the trial that Alan looked angry or like truly like humiliated. It was not when he was being accused of being a bad father. It wasn't when he was accused of killing his wife. It was when he was said to be a bad golfer. Yeah. He's such an egomaniac. Mm-hmm. 
Danny expressed a lot of surprise that the defense was trying to say that he was the mastermind of the plot. He was like, for what? To kill a woman he didn't know? To, like, to get money that he wasn't guaranteed to get? You know, he's like, there's no way I would have done that. No. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Sammy Gonzalez also testified, basically saying the same things that he did during Danny's trial. Sammy was very consistent. He was just like this kind of poor, hapless middleman who couldn't do it himself. And they said that he was like, like just a little below average intelligence, you know? He just definitely got caught up in this, you know? So Numbnuts Allen testified on his own behalf because, of course, he's a narcissistic control freak. And he really tried to put on a good show. He cried crocodile tears. He tried to say that the reason he had wheedled Sheila's whereabouts out of Daryl was because he was concerned for Daryl. On cross, of course, they made mincemeat out of him. If he was so concerned, why hadn't he reached out even once to either of his children? Yeah, yeah. So concerned that he could drop up to $30,000 a day playing golf, but he couldn't pay his child support. He also, on the stand, the prosecutor asked him what his children's birthdays were. He could not say one, not (gasps) one of his children's birthdays. Not one. Wow, that's an amazing question. It was so smart. He's trying to say that he was such a concerned father. And they're like, okay, so when's Stevie's birthday? Yeah. Mm? Can't ask him what the middle names are because they both have the same middle name and... Yeah. That's in his what's, interest. What's, what's Daryl's? Oh, what about your children? Not even his boys with Maureen. He didn't know them either. Wow. Yep. Yes. So in closing arguments, it was clear that the defense was reaching. So after they, you know, trashed Danny Rocha a little bit more, then they turned to patriotism, home and family, and even complimenting the jurors. Like one of his defense attorneys like, I've gotten to know This guy and his wife, Alan and Maureen, they're good American people. And in America, we don't just let these vile accusations fly without proof. And there was no way you can prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. He's like saying stuff like that. That's where he's going (laughs) for it, you know. And the prosecution closed with showing pictures of the quads who had to spend hours sitting in their mother's blood. (sighs) Yeah. Clinging to her. And he was essentially like the only person with a motive was Alan. The other killer's motivation was money. Yep. Alan's money. Yep. Yeah. And he basically just said, you never cared about your kids. You, We've seen you. We've seen you on the stand. You couldn't answer any questions about them. You're not a concerned father. You're somebody yep. that trashed their mother, abused their mother, ordered their mother to be brutalized, abandoned them. And yep. now you're sitting here, even like the defense brought up all this stuff about Sheila, about how she had been suspected of child abuse and tried to like trash her. And he's like, you're still trashing the victim's name in front of yep. your children. Yeah. You know, you are scum. While the jury was out, Sheila's loved ones were notified that Joey was about to face sentencing in Florida. So they are like caught between wanting to go do their victim impact statements in Florida and facing the man who actually killed Sheila or waiting to see what the jury said about Alan. So Jamie and Carrie actually flew to Florida so they could be there for the sentencing. And I guess Jamie held up pictures crime scene photos of Sheila's body to Joey's family and was like, look what your son did. Look what your family member did. You're all here to support him. This is what he did to my wife, you know? 
just just heartbreaking. So he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without ever having the possibility of parole. Joey is going to die in prison. In a crazy twist, the jury came back in Alan's case with a verdict on the same day that Joey was sentenced. And Alan was found guilty of murdering Thank his wife. God. So Alan's sentencing was set for November 2000. And in the months between the trial and sentencing, Alan's cell was searched and the prison found a secret cell phone and hundreds of contraband cigarettes. Not so coincidentally, Danny Rocha had just tried to recant his statement and say that actually he had masterminded the whole deal and Alan was totally innocent. So it appeared, based on the calls from Alan's cell phone, that he was reaching out to somebody who knew Danny to arrange a secret deal in which he would provide financial assistance to Danny's family if Danny recanted, because he was in prison for life anyway. So Danny went through with trying to make a statement and the court just rejected it. They were like, we know he's been talking to you and we know you're a liar. So F off. You're not getting anywhere with this. So as part of Joey's deal, he had to reveal exactly what happened to Sheila on that devastating day. And it's super sad. So I am going to read this account from Ann Rule's book, Every Breath You Take. While Sheila was gone that morning of November 7th, Joey said he had crawled into the garage of the Bellish home through an unlocked window and stepped from there into the utility room. He had watched Sheila as she came home with the four babies and had been in the house with her for almost two hours, breathing shallowly as he watched her with the quadruplets. Ugh. She had no idea he was there and she went about her morning routine, getting the toddlers ready for their swim by putting on their life jackets. I was going to leave, Joey said. I watched her and I saw that she wasn't a bad mother. In fact, she was very loving with the children. I decided not to do it. But as he turned to go back through the garage to the window, Joey said he either made a noise that alerted Sheila or she glanced towards the utility room and saw him. He said we were facing each other close. He would not speak of what happened next, only that he had no way to get out of the house and back to his car. It was too easy for the other people in the room to picture the scene in their minds as Sheila turned her head and looked into the eyes of a stranger dressed in camouflage. She has seen him and now he cannot leave for fear she will call the police and he'll be trapped. He's still high on cocaine, and his mind is working 90 miles an hour, but not particularly well. He fires the 45 using the white towel as a silencer, hitting her in the cheek and breaking her jaw. But she is still on her feet. He cannot fire again because the vacuum in the barrel has drawn the towel into it, making the gun useless. Sheila turns to run towards her babies to protect them, but he is right behind her. He grabs the knife from the magnetic holder on the wall and slashes at her as she struggles across the kitchen, her feet entangled in piles of clothing from the utility room and probably with at least one little boy holding onto her leg. Jesus. Ugh. It's terrible. So Alan was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility for parole. Oh, God, no one. I mean, a lot of people have deserved that. But like recently, like he definitely deserves that the most. 100% agree with you. 
He was also eventually forced to pay an undisclosed settlement in a wrongful death civil suit to Sheila's children and Jamie Bellish. In 2001, Alan was nearly killed during a knife attack by a prison gang. Which means I can't feel bad about that at all. No. After which he was segregated from Gen Pop and he was eventually transferred to a Florida facility. Maureen divorced him in 2004 before she herself served a year in prison in 2005 for filing a false tax return. There was always some speculation that Maureen had known about the plot or somehow been involved in it, but they were never able to prove that. Okay. Sammy Gonzalez was paroled after serving his 19 years. He was a model prisoner, it sounded like, and he has not reoffended, to my knowledge. Danny Rocha tried to appeal in 2019, saying that Joey Del Toro would testify that he did not order the hit. But when Joey didn't show, Danny's lawyers withdrew the appeal and he remains in prison in Florida. Joey found God in prison and married a woman from his hometown in 2017. She was named Rosie. She was a single mother who had been previously married to a family friend of Joey's. So she had like kind of known him before. She and Joey have a blog that's still around. It's not very active called Word for Word, where they mostly discussed God, God's plan, life in prison. And she wrote a, a blog post about marriage and what's it like to be married to somebody you're never going to live with because yeah. he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. However, the last entry was in May of 2021. And I looked up Rosie on Facebook and she is no longer going by the last name Del Toro, which she was before. And there was no pictures of her and Joey on her Facebook, like anywhere or no mention of him. So I'm kind of thinking maybe they're not together anymore. I know that what during COVID, he wasn't allowed any visitation or anything. So he didn't like see her for like nine months. So who knows? According to a great blog called Felony Follow-Up, which is fantastic because it's essentially like, where are they now for murder cases? So very helpful to people like me who is trying to figure out where all these people went. Three of the quads, Joe, Frank, and Tim joined the National Guard after they graduated from high school. The fourth quad, Courtney, attended the University of Miami in Ohio. Both Stevie and Daryl attended college with Stevie graduating from Portland State and Daryl graduating from a college in Florida. Ann Rule last reported in 2001 that she was working towards a medical degree. So I don't know if that came to fruition, but that was her course of study. Daryl and Jamie repaired their relationship. So there was forgiveness and, you know, a come together from that fractured relationship. Jamie has since remarried to an attorney with a child of her own. And again, this was from the early 2000s, this update. So I'm not sure where everything one stands. But at the time, Anne Rule wrote that this woman was incredible. She loved Sheila's children like they were her own. And the family had relocated to Birmingham, Alabama, where the quads were largely raised. So yeah, that is the story, guys. I, I think that this is a really, a really devastating story. You know, there's a lot about trusting your gut and keeping your head on a swivel, even when it's not about you. It's not about your relationship like that. You know, that guy, Jake Mast, he knew something was wrong in that neighborhood. Yep. There's nothing that says you can't take out your cell phone, take a quick picture. You know, hopefully you never have to report it to the police, but let's all try to take care of each other. And also, guys, I just I want you to know that if this story 
and set off any red flags about your own life or your own relationships or, you know, somebody you're worried about, you should definitely call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline. The number is 1-800-799-SAFE. And we will put that in the notes. Andy and I do our best to contribute where we can to different charities involving in our cases. So we did make a contribution to the domestic abuse hotline. We'll put a, you know, a note where you can donate that as well. And if you are personally involved in any sort of rescues, we've previously contributed to certain, you know, women's shelters and that sort of thing. And you would like us to make a donation or publicly discuss the charity you work for that helps victims of domestic abuse, please send us a DM. Let us know how we can get involved. This is a huge problem. Um, I don't know why this is making me so sad. We're like right at the end of the episode. And I'm cracking up now. Uh, but, you know, obviously this is a really, really, really sad story. And, um, you know, luckily Alan's other wives did get away and, and Sheila wasn't that lucky. And, and we really, really hope that all of you will be safe. In conclusion, I hope that if you take away anything from this episode, it's that pigs are still evil and they will eat you. <laughs> or, or it's that... The littlest thing that you notice that could seem weird could really help a lot of people like Jake Mast. So just make sure to, like Jesse said, keep your head on a swivel and pay attention and write things down and take pictures and do all the things Absolutely. to help each other. Everyone feel safe. Yeah, that's a very good point. That is a much better point and takeaway than pigs are evil. <laughs> good job, Andy. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered especially not you guys we love you love you bye